The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for separation of church and state. And he is a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court Bar. And he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ and author of three new books. Three new books are coming out on April 1st. It's in the series Paid to Piss People Off. Book one, Peace. Book two, Porn. Book three, Prayer. Go to bluecedarpress.com right now and purchase the trilogy. Bluecedarpress.com, Paid to Piss People Off. I have not read it yet, but I am going to bluecedarpress.com after this interview to go buy pay to, pe- pay to Piss People Off, Peace, Porn, and Prayer. And who is the baby uh, on the cover of Peace? The baby is our daughter, Christina, at age three at an anti-war rally that uh, I spoke at and was the only time I ever used her as a prop. And I never, ever did it again. I brought her on stage with me and she was wearing this T-shirt that's on the cover. Heck no, I won't go. And uh, it was um, she loves the fact that she's on the book cover, though, because uh, but the books are now, interesting. When you, when you, let me just ask you, yes. usually when a, a baby says, I won't go, she's talking about <laughs> something else. Other now, things. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I think she was probably trained at that time. But um, who knows? But anyway, she's happy about it. And so the book comes out April 1st. This is exciting. Three books. Three books. So this would be your, when you add them all up, you've written seven. Something like that. That's correct. I want to tell you, though, the trauma, it starts with Amazon. Um, I really, I feel guilty using Amazon to buy a pair of socks And I was seriously thinking that I wouldn't even sell the book through Amazon. Unfortunately, neither the publisher nor I get to make such a choice. Uh, So they are now selling the book. I do not particularly want people to buy it this way as an e-book, which you can download on your Kindle, which I do have. And I did that today. Now, today is not April 1st. Today is uh, March, uh, let's see, uh, the 16th. Right. But I can get them. So I ordered them and got them. I thought that's troublesome because I don't believe that with these e-books, since the publisher never agreed to sell it through Amazon, I don't think they or perhaps most importantly, me, I don't think I get 10 cents out of such sales. So I would encourage people to go there. Uh, to buy the hard cover. press itself. To, to, but it's not, they're paperbacks uh, kind of all bound together. If you buy all three, it'll discount. Right. 
But then something strange happened today. It was even worse than that. I thought I would experiment with Twitter where you can buy for pretty low fee advertising by taking one of your existing tweets and turning it into an ad for something. So I dutifully figured out how to do that. I sent it uh, because I have to approve all advertising. And I got back a note about 30 minutes later saying that they had disapproved my advertising for what? For inappropriate content. Yep. Now, inappropriate content. This means that now, just like in the days when George Carlin had seven dirty words and one of them was piss, that's why I can't advertise. And even worse, they took down my original tweet. So now you don't know anything about these books on Twitter. Now, this reminds me of two other things could, that happened. Could you, can you put a pin in that it, for one second? Because sure. it means you're being shadow banned on Twitter. We've learned that they do flag certain accounts I've discovered that my account has been flagged for inappropriate content. Really? Yeah. I, I, went, uh, I went on my privacy settings and I was told, not that I was ever going to buy advertising on Twitter, but they told me I'm ineligible to advertise because of inappropriate content. <laughs> so that means... You might have, you know, 500 followers. They're not going to see your tweets. That's right. They shadow ban you. And I keep getting the crappiest tweets from the crappiest human beings in my feed. Um, but it's good for, you know, the New York Times and Reuters and The Guardian. It's still a valuable source for news from mainstream or fringe media. Fringe. Yeah. Go ahead. What were the, you said had some other points. Well, the two things that this reminded me of, Paul Krasner, the editor of The Realist, was yes. a friend of mine. And he would have been known even better had he been arrested. He used to say, if I had just been arrested in 1968 in Chicago, people would know who I was. Right. And he died about two years ago. Yes. It was a real, real tragedy. But he had in He's one of the He's been on the first, show. He was on the show a couple of yeah, times. Yeah. Yeah. He's... Uh, I'm sure he's speaking well of it to this yeah. day. Anyway, so he had an early cartoon in one of the first issues of The Realist I saw when I was in high school that had a picture of a debate going on on a television screen and a bunch of people sitting around watching it. And there were those little balloons above everyone's head. So the next panel shows that the guy says on the television show, I don't give a damn. And then that's bleeped out. And then you see a third one that shows what the people sitting watching were filling in instead of damn, right. shit, pierce, and fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was an unusual thing. And then another thing, I was with Judy Bloom, who wrote all those wonderful young adult uh, books. 
And we were at some publisher event in the Bahamas somewhere, and we were talking at some session. And I said to her, Judy, what's the weirdest thing that you um, ever saw banned? And she said, Mad Libs. Those for people who don't really? know about it. I, it's their stories in paperback books that have blank space. I have some. Oh, I, I have some. We all have them. Yeah. I said, well, what what's wrong? What's wrong? She said, well, they they wouldn't sell them. She named a couple of uh, of uh, public schools. She's, and I said, but there's nothing in them. And she said, no, but it's because they worry about what young people might put into those blanks. If that's not thought police, I don't know what is. But meanwhile, Elon Musk gets on and says he's a great free speech advocate and I can't even advertise this book on Twitter. I can't even mention it on Twitter. And he wanted that irritates me. He you said you wanted me to be mad and I'm mad. And it's just and I'm, I'm embarrassed that I'm this angry about something as inconsequential, given the rest of the crap that is happening in the world. I'm glad you said that, because when I have my technical problems, I go, why me? Why me? And there are more important things going on in, in the world. Let's talk about them. Sure. For profit health care in this country. Yeah, well, the two kinds is for-profit health care. And then there are public hospitals, charitable hospitals that are actually owned by profit-making organizations. And I just wanted to tell you about one because it's in a city not too far from where I grew up. Pottsville. Pottsville. I was looking in at Pennsylvania. This. Well, actually, it's Pottstown. What what does it say about a state that has two cities, one being Pottsville and the other Pottstown? It's gone to pot is what it says. It's gone to pot. And that's probably you couldn't even say that. Don't even tweet about that because pot, it's got so many negative meanings. It, it, I ban it myself. I used to sell cutlery in Pottstown. That was my very first job. One summer, I sold cutlery door to door. And when I ran out of people in my immediate neighborhoods, I went both to Pottstown, which is close to Philadelphia, and then a little bit north where Pottsville is. I see. Anyway, I wanted to tell you a little about that town. If you Google it, you find out interesting things about people who live in Pottstown. Too many knives, discover, too many knives, and for, too many knives and forks. Too many, that's, that's indeed, this is the thing. I don't want to get diverted here. I was pretty good at this because I was selling these things at the in the same summer that Richard Speck uh-huh. walked into somebody's house and killed. I think six student nurses and I'd walk in and they had to say a certain light knock on the door. You'd say, I'm from Alcoa aluminum. And I wonder if you have a few minutes. And I just like a kitchen knife, (laughs) a penny and some kitchen shears. And a neck. 
and a, and a neck and neck, a something neck, uh, neck, to, neck. to collect the blood yeah. at the end. But um, but I was pretty good at it. And um, but it, it it became much more lucrative for me when I when my neighbor I told her I was running out of people to go and see. And she said, uh, well, I do the uh, promotion of engagements for the local newspaper. Why don't I just give you the names of all the people and their addresses that are going to, you know, announce their engagement tomorrow. And then you can see them. And that was great because I could go. And the first thing, I, if a mother answered the door, I she'd say, oh, this is great because my my daughter's just got engaged. I said, really? And then this was a time, of course, when uh, you uh, women were expected to have a hope chest that would include pots and pans and knives and forks and spoons because men were assumed to be, in, well, they couldn't possibly cook. So it was big. And I got a lot better once I kept getting these these early warnings of who was getting engaged. Anyway, so I'm in Pottstown in Pottsville. I want to tell you about Pottstown. It's just that it's maybe a 40-minute drive to Philadelphia. And they have a public school system. And I looked up some facts about Pottstown, which are important to the rest of the story about greed. You discover that its public school system actually spends a little more money per pupil, $19,000 a pupil than a, a bunch of inner city schools do, but uh, it, its own publicity acknowledges that it's uh, only average. Their schools are only average. Now, there's also one hospital in Pottstown. It's about to lose its property tax exemption because of a lawsuit. And here's what the lawyers, the judges, several judges have now said, if they in Pottstown actually paid property taxes, they would, by dint of that, owe the public school system, which most people know is largely built on local property taxes, they, the system would get $924,000. But they, of course, didn't pay that $924,000. And the whole thing has ended up in court. This is what Pennsylvania and plenty of other states do. And, you know, I'm a big, big supporter of public schools. Mm -hmm. You lose your exemption in many states, including Pennsylvania, if you do not serve the community and if it is entirely free, this is the words in Pennsylvania, for private profit motives. So what critics of this property tax exemption did was to demonstrate just how this system really functions. That hospital and a couple of others are owned by a company called Tower Health Limited Legal LLC. It's got a doozy of profit margins, profit motives. For example, as one of the judges said a few weeks ago, there's an eye-popping way in which the people 
at Tower Health LLC get paid. The top five executives each get over $1 million. Unbelievable. And the president gets $2 million. The, the hospitals also are required to pay a fee, a management fee to Tower Health, and that amounts to $23 million a year. $23 million. There's a study that was done in 2021 that three quarters of the private nonprofit hospitals are spending less on their community health, in other words, the actual treatment of patients than they received in tax breaks. So they're not just breaking even, they're also profiting from this. This greed in the healthcare system is absolutely appalling. Immoral. And this, this is something that has not, this, this piece of it just hasn't come to light. And of course, they're going to, the Tower Health is going to appeal it yet again. And uh, they appealed it once and lost the second time. But now they'll appeal it. And they may even try to find a way to get into the federal courts, which, of course, are in their own way totally corrupted. I, I see someone said um, on, in the chat, which I shouldn't be reading, but as well, as long as churches are tax exempt, who cares about schools? Right. And then another gentleman said that he sold Cutco knives when he was in college. When you have a military budget that's approaching $1 trillion a year, the new budget is yep. coming out. That's, you know, it's that's what they admit to. And there's the stuff they do off the books. Sure. When you're in the killing business, you're not going to take care of your own. If there's money to be made in killing foreigners overseas, there's also yep. money to be made killing your own people here. Sell guns, right? If there's money to be made yeah. in AR-15s, make up something about the Heller decision and uh, sell those guns. And if there's money to be made charging exorbitant prices for drugs that cost nothing to make, do it. We kill people. We kill people overseas, kill people here. It doesn't matter. Yeah. We're a murderous nation. No, we truly are. $842 billion in the disclosed defense budget that Biden put forward is $100 billion more than it was in fiscal 2022, just two years ago. I and mean, we're, we're at peace. No, we're at peace. But you wouldn't know that from every newscast in this country. Everyone is trying to convince us that one or more of the following countries are really ready to walk into our shores right. and attack us. China, of course, right. Russia. And uh, in a recent report on NBC News, uh, we now learn that people who are crossing the border are often crossing from Canada. You say, what, Canadians think there's a better health care system in right. the United States? They want to come. No, they fly, folks fly from South America 
to Canada and then cross the border. And yeah. that's but these this fear mongering is absolutely unbelievable. It started with local news. If you watch local news in any place, every motel I was in, it was all the first four stories were somebody got murdered. Right. Somebody got murdered. So every city. So you have to panic about that. So you have to let the police get away literally with murder. And they just did again uh, the other day. Right. Be afraid. It's it's a cliche, but it bears repeating because most Americans haven't figured this out because saying (laughs) I want to defund the police is political arsenic. They have trained us through it bleeds. If it bleeds, it leads to mistrust one another and look for enemies except the real enemy, which is the richest one percent, the war profiteers or the people who run the hospitals and, and make our drugs. They distract all the attention away from the people who are really killing us. China is our enemy. The debate now is, do we go to war with Russia or China? That's the exactly. argument. The, the difference seems to be the Democrats want to go to war with Russia and the uh, Republicans want to go to war with China. But nobody's yeah. saying, well, what about not going to war? Taiwan, <laughs> they talk about Taiwan, the invasion of Taiwan now, the same way Biden talked about Ukraine. They're going to attack. It may, yeah. we, they're going to attack. There's no question that China is going to take back Taiwan. It's just a matter of time. Well, if that is what you really believe, don't you think you should be talking to Xi right now? Don't you think instead of selling submarines to Australia and making alliances with Great yeah. Britain, you should be on the phone all the time? with China to tamp down these threats, if they're real, there's an inevitability. They're, they're acclimating us to a war with China. I think you're absolutely right. I can't, I mean, I'd like to think that there were Republicans who would say, wait a minute, this, the China thing, let, let's be serious here. What is our actual national interest in Taiwan? And, and then when they say, well, one of the things we need to do, since we have a hundred billion dollars more this year, we probably ought to bring back the draft. I'd like to know who wants to send their man or woman, man only, unfortunately, at the moment, to war in Taiwan. Well, where the women fight in, they send women. Well, but then they don't draft women. They don't draft you. You have you can volunteer, oh, I see. but you can't serve. You can't serve in certain combat areas still to this day. Okay. But Jimmy Carter made some uh, you know effort when he was uh, had decided we we needed to start registering people for the draft, and he said um, we're gonna we should register men and women. Then he went to Congresswoman Pat Schroeder, who just died two right. days ago. I had been in touch with her a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she said to the Washington Post once, um, she said, the White House had the nerve to come to me to say I should handle the women 
in the draft issue. She said, I didn't get elected to Congress to help make war more possible. Right. She was a a, a national treasure. And uh, she went on from, I think she was in Congress for 16 years and she went on to, to work uh, for publishers, but but she was just a world class person. Let's talk about interest rates, the Fed, and the bank run. Yeah, well, but the bank runs um, can't happen in Massachusetts, they say. <laughs> right. Well, no, they're watching the local news up here in Massachusetts is a trip in itself. Not only do they lead with leading, but they're constantly constantly talking about economic turmoil that's ready to encroach on us if the snow doesn't get us. We've had virtually no snow. We do have some inflation, but inflation, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about Tom Hartman being such a brilliant person and Robert Reich is also a brilliant person. He writes columns for The Guardian. And if you read some of the latest ones, he says as clearly as anybody, what causes inflation? What causes inflation is corporate greed. It is not the fact that wages are going up because they're not even keeping up with inflation. If there is a solution, and I I think this is 100% correct, you have to use price controls. It is outrageous that companies in this country are recognizing making massive profits, unparalleled profits at a time when a lot of people live literally paycheck to paycheck and nobody does anything about these costs. Just a personal example. Uh, Last week, I saw a doctor, he put me on a a new drug and I'm on Medicare and you fill out a form, where do you normally get your drugs and a CVS? And he saw that and he said, don't go to CVS. I said, why not? He said, because you will have to pay $300 for this prescription that he gave me the name of some other pharmacies. He said, go to these. I said, how much will I save? He said, 90%. You'll get them for $30. Wow. This, This is a system that is so sick and so corrupted and blaming people for trying to get a decent wage, a living wage is Absolutely shocking. The other thing uh, Reich talks about uh, is the concentration of profit centers. In other words, if you want, if you are non-vegetarian and you want to buy meat, two-thirds of the providers of all the beef and poultry in this country come from four big agribusiness companies, two thirds of it. If you want to get, um, if you want to get seed corn, you want to plant corn so you can grow crops that are corn that people will eat. It's virtually one company that controls the market and bear. the price. It's bare, right? And it's just, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you can, they will. My listeners know this. Monsanto, I think Monsanto was purchased by Bayer. If 
They're, Some, the, they the have aspirin company. Yeah. They have patented their their seeds. If the seeds blow in the wind and land on your your farm <laughs> and it starts to grow, they will come and they'll sue you or they'll demand uh, yep. you pay them. Yep. Yep. I mean, a family farm, I mean, notwithstanding Willie Nelson's endless farm aids, which, you know, alerted a lot of people to the problems in, on farms, but you know, corporate farming is just destroyed, destroyed uh, farms everywhere. You look at uh, where I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, go back there today and these little farms, they used to have a little farm stand and they don't have farm stands anymore. But they have a lot more barns and a lot bigger equipment and a whole lot more money going into agribusiness pockets. And I think it is yeah, very sad. Bill Gates, I think, owns a lot of farmland. I think that's where he's putting all his money. The yep. uh, New York Times had an article about dating podcasters. Yes. This it's an interesting article. It, it says that many women, this is mainly about women and male podcasters, they won't date people if they find out that they are podcasters because they don't like what a lot of men podcasters do on their shows. They're, they're constantly insulting to women and so on. And I think it's it's similar to what happened in talk radio back in uh, the early 80s. There were so many startup networks for radio. I, I think it was on at least half of them. And everybody could become a talk show host. Mm -hmm. And people were reticent. I mean, you'd say, well, I have a talk show. And they go, so what? So does everybody else. And now it's podcasting. There are close to a million active podcasts and with the exception of this podcast and four or five others i think they could disappear and nobody would care well there there's a you know there's a couple they're they're filling a void left by the demise of local radio and local yep. television and local newspapers there were a lot of people who used to have jobs in journalism and radio and television, and they're now doing their own podcasts. They got to go somewhere. Some of it, some of it's good. Uh, some of it is. I mean, look, I'm not going to tell you I've sampled more than 50 podcasts. I mean, but I mean, some of them, they're just, they're kind of unlistenable because yeah. they don't tell you anything. And the, every guy who has an opinion about March Madness does not need to create a podcast in order to talk about basketball. You just don't need to do it. There is a very clever movie on Netflix with uh, uh, Jonah Hill and... Snoop Dogs and it. it's about the a guy Jonah Hill being a white person. He's one with on the, a podcast with an African American guy, and he at one point decides that he's going to 
not even try to do anything else. You're going to make a life interest out of being a white guy with a black friend doing a podcast. It's very clever. It's worth watching. It's the Oscars before you go. Did you watch the you're a big cinephile. What did you think of the Oscars? I did watch a few of the Oscars, but frankly, only at the end, because I knew it'd be horribly boring. I was delighted to see um, that uh, uh, the whales. You said it's the best movie you've seen. I think it is. I did get some uh, blowback from people because of um, the fact that he was in a fat suit. And I'm I'm kind of sensitive to that, but the difference I think between hiring someone and putting them in a fat suit, I don't think there are 600 pound actors working. I do have a friend named Alan Toy, who's an actor and who was crippled with polio and is in a wheelchair. He never, there were dozens of movies made about FDR, none of which, including the original Annie, uh, none of them ever used an actor in a wheelchair. Ralph Bellamy. He was the first one that did. He was the first one. It was a big deal when NBC remade Annie about a year ago. They hired him. And that was a big deal. And I understand that. And it's appalling that they but- never... But the girl who played Annie was not a real orphan. Well, son of a gun. What about the dog? Do you have any criticism of the dog? Uh, What was the dog's name? Not Toto. Ann Lee. No. Ann Lee will tell us. Just (laughs) three seconds. Okay, we're going to get an answer. Professor Ann Lee knows the answer. I'll bet she does. The dog's name was... Okay, Barf. Isn't it Barf? Arf. 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 I guess. I think. If Ann Lee nope. says it's Arf, um, then it's No, no, I, I said it's Arf. Oh, you said it. No, oh, you're probably wrong. No, I'm, I'm Do wrong. you think we're going to get an answer to this? Well, if, not, the whole if, world wants to know. If Professor Ann Lee doesn't know the answer, that means... Alf, somebody says. No, no. no. Alf. All right. That's, a, that's a, an alien puppet. Well, folks... You need. What am I going to do? You need I don't know. to buy Here. Peace, Porn, and Prayer. It's the trilogy. I'll tell you an easy way to get it. Okay. You don't even have to go there because we created a very simple way to go directly to the site. It's b i t dot l y slash Barry Lynn book. And that'll take you directly to the right page. And you can order, do anything you want. Book one, peace. Book two, porn. Book three, prayer. It's the paid to piss people off trilogy. And it's published on April 1st. Pre-order it today. Follow Barry Lynn over on Twitter well, maybe <laughs> we're mad no. at Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Don't follow me on Twitter, but, but I am on Facebook and um, I don't know what I'm going to do about Twitter because it's, it's, it's just annoying, but it's good to be in the, 
good company because piss was one of those words, the first of these seven dirty words that got George Carlin in so much trouble. Yes. So it's good to be in his company. Well, Reverend Barry W. Lynn, stay out of trouble. Only good trouble. Thank you. Thank you. Mike Steinel, Professor Mike Steinel is back and you can see him. He's got three gigs coming up. Let me see if I got this right. On March 29th, you're going to be at the Comedy Arena in McKenna, Texas. Did I get that right? McKinney. McKinney, Texas. McKinney, Texas. The Comedy Arena, March 29th at McKinney, Texas. You're going to be at the University of Texas at Dallas at the Johnson Performance Center. Hall. Hall. That will be April Fool's Day. Yeah. And where April are you going to be? You're going to be at the wine bar around the corner, right? Steve's Wine Bar in Denton, Texas, Steve. April 19th, Wednesday. And you're going to be live streaming that. That'll be live streamed. Yeah. So people can call in, not call. I mean, they can right. just go to the, the go to Facebook live and it, it you know, uh, f be a friend of Steve's Wine Bar and you should should be able to pull it right up. Hey, you remember this? It's time right now. For the David Feldman Show, he's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke. He knows quite a few. It's what was the rest of it? It's time, it's time right, right now. now. <laughs> I think that was it. The David Feldman Show. So so get your ears on right. Buckle, buckle in, in real tight. tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yeah. Who are you playing with? My group, Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert. And we're doing music from, uh, oh, I've, from the, uh, I'm, I'm echoey, from uh, Saving Charlie Parker, the audio book. Yeah. And I see you have it behind you. Thank you. I, I, every time I, I uh, watch your show, um, I, I see that. I'm very flattered. Well, Turn and I'm flattered that you asked me to join the show. I feel like I've been asked to the prom by the coolest guy in school. <laughs> and I feel I have the most beautiful woman. Do you have a corsage for me? Yeah, I do. I just need your dad's permission <laughs> to see how far I can take you in, in the car. Do we have a hotel room afterwards? Well, I don't want to <laughs> give it. I don't want to give it. We're, yeah. You know, these kids these days, they go, the parents just, yeah, you'll be, it's, it's an all-nighter, you know, just stay uh -huh. out. It's safer, you know, they did do. You, did you go to your prom? I didn't, I pumped gas. Yes, I I took my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, to my, to the prom. Wow. And, and she, we have very nice pictures of that. She was lovely. And I had a white, back then we did white dinner coats, you know, that was the thing. Nobody did a tuxedo. You just did a white dinner coat and got the... I think you rented the shoes, maybe. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But uh, I'd now pump, in I pumped gas on my wedding night. My, my friend Michael borrowed. Is that a euphemism for something else? No, I <laughs> the rustic cabin Exxon on 9W. Oh, man, we told him. Pump and gas. I pumped gas and somebody borrowed my driver's license. <gasps> and were, it, you, were you 18? I was 18, yeah. 
Oh, so you were at, you have an early in the I was year born birthday, in May. maybe. Yeah, I was born in May. Oh, okay. So I was yeah, I was in November. I was I'm I got thrown out of a bar in college because I tried to drink and I was yet yeah, 17. The guy looked at me, what are you doing? I can't serve you. <laughs> Everybody else was 18. I, and I'll, I'll try it, you know, and I just flashed the thing and so nope. I, I thought the night I pumped gas, I didn't feel sorry for myself. Everybody came by. They made me do their windows. And I, <laughs> they were, and I thought, you're all virgins. So am I. And you're just spending a lot of time and money on something that's not going to end well tonight. And then I found out 20, 30 years later, no, they weren't virgins. <laughs> Prom night was fantastic for them <laughs> you know you should i i think you could make a that's a that's a novel there so there's a short story there at least hey i've been working on a new novel yeah oh i got invited i've done two book clubs actually pl places where these women have read the book mm -hmm. saving charlie parker available by Endurance uh books and barnes and noble and um, on Audible in audiobook form and in CD. But anyway, um, yeah, I did a, a book club, the Barnstormers Book Club, and they were very nice. It was like 16 women. Wow. And uh, no men. And, they, and, the, and the, it was a friend of my wife's who invited me, and she said, everybody will have read the book. Because that's the rule. You can't come to the meeting unless you read the book. And I said, wow, I'm, I'm glad my uh, high school English teacher wasn't so strict. <laughs> I never read. I was never prepared with the reading. I always forgot. Okay. Oh, we're, we're supposed to be up to page 44. Oh, shoot. I always forgot to do the reading. I did. I enjoyed it when I did it. People say to me, like, did you read Moby Dick? And I'd say, no, but I wrote several term papers on it. Actually, Moby, <laughs> well, you know, Dick, you can, Moby Dick they, is a great book, by the way. They took so much time to go through it. The teacher, you know, by the time you, if you just go to the classes, you can kind of get the gist of it. Yeah. You know, but anyway, so it's, I got to tell you about this. They were great. They And I was so flattered and everything. We, we kind of. I just kept wanting to talk about the new book because I'm excited about it. It's another time travel book. And and so uh, this is different um, because it's a different form of time travel that this character has to to do. And it's I think it it, it just makes a little more sense. Not the time travel that really happens. But and then I'm my wife had said she's been bugging me. You got to put a love interest in it. So I asked this group and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, you have to have some you have to have a love interest. But the problem is, it's the 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 book is going to be about a sixty nine year old. It's two thousand nineteen. I'm going to write it pre COVID, mm -hmm. just to make it a little easier. And um, two thousand nineteen, he goes to his his father's funeral, and his mother says, "By the way, Robert, the person you thought was your father is not your real father at all. You were." I I had a, a fling with this jazz trumpeter a guy named Tony Martin and uh, in 1951, no, 1949. And uh, he's your real father. Well, is he still alive? No, he was murdered. Like, ah, another crime. You know, he was murdered. Uh, yeah. So mystery. murder at, murder at, uh, 
Birdland. So this guy's going to go back to 1949. Right. But he's going to fall in. He's got to fall in love with somebody who maybe is not his age. So I'm wondering. And alter and then, the timeline continuum. Yeah, but he 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 keeps aging. He doesn't get younger when he goes back. He's still 69. So the problem is, is he going to, you know, like one? I don't I don't think I can write a sex scene. I might be able to write a love scene. Well, you've already got 69 in it. <laughs> now you just need a noun and a preposition and a proposition. <laughs> but anyway, so they, they were so excited. And that, and I said, can I come back next week? And let's just write this together. Uh-huh. They were throwing out ideas, you know, but they mo- mostly didn't think that a young girl. I said, what if he fell in love with this coat check girl who's in her late 20s? And they're going like, yeah, 70 year old man, late 20s girl, you know. And uh, I'm thinking, what about Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> 90 years old. I think he just broke up with Jerry Hall. Yeah. Wasn't she married to uh, Mick yeah. Jagger? Yeah. She was on Letterman one time and she had a real and she was just had a baby and she was nursing. And she had, she was very, you know, she, she had like. She was like this, arthritis in both hands. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Now she was very full chested and Letterman kept looking at her and goes, I don't know what it is, but suddenly I feel like I've overinflated my tires. <laughs> <laughs> Mick Ch- is Mick Jagger 80 yet? No, I think he's 77. Mm, okay. Mm. This is getting close. He's getting, getting close. close. What, yeah. what what happens with me and the Stones where I can go years without listening to them and then I rediscover them and realize they're amazing? What What is that? Well, it's the groove, you know, and uh, and they're just, you know, very creative, you know, very totally illiterate musicians, except for the drummer. Um, Charlie. Watts, yeah. Charlie Watts, he was a jazz drummer mm-hmm. and he played in a jazz, he, you know, like his drumming is, first of all, his groove is so solid <clears throat> and, um, you know, the guitar work, the, the, the riffs, everything's catchy. And, um, yeah, I just heard the song I'd never heard by them recently. And I went like, and he was, uh, Mick was singing in a high falsetto, almost like, uh, um, you know, like a Motown artist or something mm-hmm. like, uh, and I thought that's really cool. You know, yeah, they're just, they're, they're just geniuses, you know, that have been at it for a long time. And Van Morrison is his gift. Is he a producer? When you go look at his body of work, most people, you should, you should. You need to listen to Astral Weeks. I've been listening to it all, uh, the deluxe version, and all the takes. Unbelievable! That right. is a jazz album, right? It's got a jazz bassist. It's got jazz drums, and he's in great voice. I thought, you know, like by the time he gets to, um, you know, even by the time they're doing the last waltz, while seeing with the uh, the band, you know, and that he doesn't sound good. He, he sung himself out, you know. I don't think he had good vocal health. But 
Is yeah, he a visionary? Because there's a sound, there's an arrangement. Is he producing that or is it? Feel- well, yeah. I, oh, you you think the horns? No, I think the horns were added by somebody else. There's there's horn arrangements that were added later on Astral Weeks over the top of it. I, I'm assuming this sounds to me like that. Right. But, you know, he has a voice. His voice is like a saxophone and he played saxophone. His voice has got the, it sounds like an instrument to me. Yeah. You know, it even affects his, um, affects his pronunciation, how he uh, changes vowels and things to get like a, uh, the sound of a the sound of an instrument, like saxophone. Right. And, and he's, and he's legato. See, I think the key. What's all, legato? Smoothness. All language the, the languages we love the most are the most legato Italian, you know, German, everything, German. everything. No, German is very good. <laughs> we don't like it. No, it's, it's true. The Ital- singers love to sing Italian because it's, 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 it just comes out of the mouth. You know, I used to talk to my, I, I really was, when I taught really harped on legato, I always thought that like, the personality in the sound of an instrument is more about how it starts and how it ends. It's in the envelope. And when, when we make a really smooth note, it, it doesn't distract us from the tone. And so like, if you listen to Pavarotti, I made a tape for my students. It was, I think it was like 56 great tones. And it started with Pablo Casals on cello. And and then it, it had it had Pavarotti, it had sent uh, 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 the the other t- great tenor Domingo, it had uh, Joan Sutherland, it had Louis Ar- even Louis Armstrong. He goes, the tape I use for Louis Armstrong is he goes, it's very clear. Right. He there's no tone, but there's still whatever's there. He keeps it going because he was so look it was legato, you know. Right. Everything and and. When it's smooth, you know, if I if I were to go, it's time right now for the David Feldman show. Right. Not very good. It's time right now for the David Feldman show. If I if I have a good legato, it doesn't it all the thing, the impurities of the voice doesn't matter. Matter of fact, there's a little book called Vocal Wisdom written in the 1500s. Lamperti is the guy that wrote it. And there's this line in there. Um, the quality of the voice is not as important as if as, as the legato. If legato is maintained, it will be perceived as beautiful. Hmm. And most you know, like Miles, legato, Train, legato, uh, Charlie Parker, legato. Interesting. You know, Yeah. So Dylan, anyway, uh, Dylan, I don't know how to get on that. D- D- Dylan would be the opposite of legato. No, listen to him. He's very legato. See, I can do some Dylan. Once upon a time, you know, there's that sound. He keeps that sound going. Once upon a time. Oh, we're going to ding, won't we? Yeah. I don't want to do that. Hey, um, uh, when he goes into a studio... Does he stick around and do the arrangements or does he leave it to a producer? Does he hire 
Okay. Well, the arrangements, when you say arrangements, um, most of his stuff, there's only a few things that is actually arranged that he didn't do. I mean, he decides on the form of the song. And lots of times it just happens in, you know, like some of those songs do not have a set number of bars per chorus. And the people with him, they were, it was just being arranged on the fly. And he didn't use any charts. There was no written, nothing written out. Matter of fact, blood in the tracks, he kept bringing people in. And uh, if they didn't pick up on what he was doing, he'd just send them home. And finally, this one bass player, I think it's Brian Bromberg, maybe. David Bromberg. What is it? Is it David Bromberg? Maybe. Okay. Yeah. He had played guitar and, and in the, the notes about uh, that, he would, he just would watch uh, um, Bob Dylan's hands and he could tell when he changed, he could tell what chord he was on. So, and and so that's why a lot of those things um, were just pretty sparse, you know, it's guitar, drums and, um, uh, and bass. And so and I like some of the, the alternate tracks, the ones they did in New York of uh, um, Tangle Up in Blue are better than the ones they did in Minneapolis. He went to Minneapolis for a Christmas holiday and his brother, who was a producer and did jingles in Minneapolis. Oh, really? They, yeah. Yeah. You big jingle producer. His brother. Today at McDonald's. He, he redid some of the songs, changed the keys. So Kangle Up in Blue has piano on it in um, in Minneapolis. And um, and but the, the New York version uh, has guitar. And there's another one. And they didn't use the one of them because his jacket scrapes on the guitar. You keep hearing this weird noise. But the performance is much better, you know. Wow, that's an, a funny idea for a sketch. Richard Belzer just passed away. <gasps> You're kidding. Yeah. Oh, and man. one of his famous bits in the clubs was saying, you know, Bob Dylan was Jewish, which means he was bar mitzvahed. And then he would act out Dylan singing <laughs> the Haftor and the nasal. It was very funny. And the With idea. The Bob Dylan voice. Yeah. It was really funny, especially <laughs> in New York. But uh, the idea that he has a brother who does commercial jingles is also a funny idea for a sketch. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, he's still alive. I think his name is David. David so Zimmerman. David Zimmerman, yeah. You could probably Google him. I mean, he's a very successful jingle producer in Minneapolis. So something is genetic. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and maybe just in the, you know, maybe... Bob influenced, you know, how if you have a brother who's into something, you look up to him, yeah. you kind of pick, pick up on those things. David, I've been watching. I'm in totally. Well, you're immersed. a Dylanologist. And you no, have, but under I have, I have underwear that says I am. What did Bob Dylan? I know. What did Bob Dylan's father do? Read an appliance store. Was he musical? Um. No, but one of the things they had is radios mm -hmm. and TVs. So he always had a radio, you know, like, um, yeah, he ran an appliance store. And I think his brother had a movie theater, too. There's something, as I, I recall, I may be wrong about that. His father's brother, his uncle. Bob's yeah, his uncle had, had a movie theater 
next to the appliance store. They were in, um, they had moved Hibben? from Duluth because the father got polio and, and had issues and he moved to be f- with family in, uh, where, where, where's Dylan from? Hibbing? I, I want to say Hibbing. 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 And was it an unhappy childhood? No, I think he was doted on given, you know, he had a motorcycle. He had, yeah, he, you know, he was, no, I don't think it's, it's a weird thing that when he left, he kind of disavowed, you know, he made up this story that he was an orphan (laughs) and it got into the papers and the folks back home, you know, uh, read about it. And that, that kind of hurt. I'm sure that kind of stung. But he had to redefine himself. He he recreated himself. Oh, he totally, totally invented himself. Said he worked in circuses and, you know, (laughs) had been traveled all over on trains and stuff. He had a, yeah, and he adopted that kind of, um, you know, he, Woody Guthrie was his, his hero. And so he adopted the speech pattern of Woody Guthrie. And there for a long time, he just, all he did was Woody Guthrie songs. And, and uh, a friend of his in, in, uh, Minneapolis, before he'd gone to New York, said, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. Come with me. And he took him to his house and he played him Ramblin' Jack Elliott. He says, there's already somebody who does this better than you. Mm-hmm. Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who became a friend of his, you know. And Ram- Ramblin' Jack was kind of the the, the folksy um, who uh, cowboy. He was a, totally a dime store cowboy. I think he's from New Jersey. Yeah. And he was Jewish, too. And and when when Dylan found out his name, which is like Obramowitz or something like that, <laughs> it, he was in, they were in a bar in Greenwich Village and he just started laughing and fell on the floor. They said there's because he met this cowboy, you know, Ramblin' right. Jack, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Ramblin' Did Jacob. Ever, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it could have been Jacob. There, there's some hey, value to reinventing yourself or putting on a costume the way Bowie dressed or jagger they would dress a certain way and then they they'd escape themselves and feel more free i would assume well bob's always even from the beginning was conscious of the image you know that famous uh, the album uh, where he's they're in the cold and he's kind of with he's with uh, Susie rotola his girlfriend she's got his arm and he's got a he's got a uh, like a one of those uh work shirts, you know, mm-hmm. a, a blue work shirt and then a, uh, a leather jacket. She said in her memoir that he stood in front of the mirror for a half an hour, getting everything to look just right for that photo shoot. Hmm. You know, and it looks like just, oh, here's two, this yep, beautiful couple of young people, you know, in love and they're, and they're huddled, they're in the cold and, and they're, you know, so no, he, totally always uh, conscious of his image. And I think, you know, the fact that he's been so private, I think there's a, there's a mystery. He's kept a mystery to him. Right. You know, I don't know how he's doing. I hope he's doing okay. He's he's getting up there. But he's still touring. Yeah. He is going to start touring again or did start after I think I haven't looked at the schedule. And you but, drove, uh, you tried to I, listen to every Dylan CD chronologically I, on a trip. Yes, I loaded 
I, I bought them all within, you know, I didn't know much about Dylan until 2008. And then within like from August to January one, I had purchased all the CDs and I had like maybe 10 books and I was reading them, you know, and uh, I put them in my iTunes and I, I through the books. There's a great book that lists all the recordings when they were recorded. That's different than when they were released, you know, <clears throat> but I put them in in the, and some of them were like of him uh, sit, sitting in a hotel room in Minneapolis. You know, that was some of the early ones. And one high school recording where him and his friend are just goofing around with, with a tape machine. And uh, but I put him in in my iTunes it, back, back in the time when you used to have an iPod. I put him in my iPod and they were in order. And uh, I put my earphones on and I had I had a trip. I drove all I drove 10 hours to Missouri and then another trip down to Houston and then another trip up to back up to Denton. I think it was I figured 17 hours in the car and I was only up to 1974. Wow. <laughs> he recorded so many things. What's that? Well, when was blood on the track? 75, 74, 76? Yeah, I, I was just there. You have 74. And because I had all the bootlegs, too, which happened in there and the demos and all that stuff. Wow. Which are which are interesting. I'm not enamored with them like I once was. I just really felt the need to really explore that. Well, but, Professor Mike Steinel, March 29th, will be at the Comedy Arena in McKinney, Texas. That sounds exciting with your band. April Fool's Day. He will be at the University of Texas at Dallas at Johnson Performance Hall. Did I get that right? Yes. And then absolutely. You, then you will be playing Denton, Texas, the wine bar. And what is the date there? April 19th, the wine bar. Should we listen? And that'll be streamed. This is one of my favorite songs. And this is based on an episode of the Ralph Nader show, I believe. A book by Mickey Huff. Who we just United, had. USA of Distraction, who was just on Ralph Nader again. And much of the verbiage in this, I re really need to pay Ralph and cut him in on this song if I ever make any money on it, because there's there's all these phrases that he that he did in the introduction that are just beautiful. OK, this is called USA of Distraction. I love this song. Here we go. Old music from Professor Mike Steinel. every 
night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We've lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted. So we never notice that our data has been extracted. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. All right. has been put into motion our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day diversity in media is gone 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 slowly fading out like a sad sad song we're living every day we're living every night in the usa of distraction Intelligent spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA. neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Say 
That's fantastic. I think that's you know, perfect. Those words are he. The, I, I just pulled that right out of the introduction. Ralph Nader is a poet. I should send that to him. I never did. He might sue me. I know. No, <laughs> he would love it. <laughs> Professor Mickey might sue me. <laughs> Professor Mike Steinell. Go to mikesteinell.com for a treasure trove of the man's books and CDs. Go read Saving Charlie Parker. It has the Feldman guarantee. If it doesn't tickle your soul, I will reimburse you. And go see Professor Mike Steinell. March 29th at the Comedy Arena in McKinney, Texas. What time does that start? 7.30. April Fool's Day at Johnson Performance Hall at the University of Texas at Dallas. And then the Wine Bar in Denton, Texas. What's the date on that? April 19th. Wednesday, April 19th. We're live streaming. Great. I love you, buddy. That'll be fun. Same right back at you. Let's see if we can do this. It might be working, Howie. It might work. It didn't work last time on the first try. Today is the first day of spring. Six members of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers, were convicted on Monday for the role they played in the January 6th insurrection. This is the third group of Oath Keepers to be put on trial for their role in attempting to block a peaceful transfer of power. Unlike the other two groups, these Oath Keepers were not accused of seditious conspiracy. French President Emmanuel Macron barely survived a no-confidence vote today after acting unilaterally last week to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Members of the far left and far right vowed to continue taking to the streets to protect what they consider France's delicate work-life balance. Chinese President Xi Jinping landed in Moscow Monday, where he will hold talks on Ukraine tomorrow with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Amazon announced it is firing 9,000 executives as it trims 3% of their corporate workforce. I guess those executives could have used a union. Rotten hell, all 9,000 of you. Idaho says it's about to authorize the use of firing squads. I'm sorry, firing squads to carry out state sanctioned executions, firing squads in Idaho. One student is dead, another injured after a shooter opened fire this morning in an Arlington, Texas high school. Donald Trump says he will be arrested on Tuesday. For more on this, we are joined by Howie Klein. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, as well as the publisher and author of Down With Tyranny, where everybody should go every day. Welcome, Howie Klein. Thank you. I feel welcome. Thank you. You are loved here. Hey, a lot of people, Howie, have said to me they love this bumper sticker that I made up that says stay strong and protect the weak. A little later on in the show, I will tell our listeners how they can have a stay strong and protect the weak bumper sticker mailed to wherever they live. We'll talk about that in in a few minutes. But first, our top story is Donald Trump. Will he go quietly? And has he ever? <laughs> has he ever gone quietly? No, no. He's all about the ratings. And so, so uh, 
No, he won't be quiet. Now, the question really is, uh, are they going to arrest him tomorrow or, or, you know, are they going to bring him in for uh, an indictment? And I didn't think that it was going to happen. And then what and then uh, I read that the um, I, I don't know, the New York Police Department or whoever does this, but unloaded um, you know, huge numbers of, of uh, you know, what are those things called those uh, like barricades in front mm-hmm. of the courthouse uh, today for tomorrow. So I guess that they, they do know that it's going to happen. So I guess it, it will happen. How smart, we're talking about Alvin Bragg, who is the DA in Manhattan. He was elected. He's a candidate. How smart a move is this to die on this hill for him to bring charges on an illegal campaign donation in kind because it was hush money to Stormy Daniels that went through Michael Cohn? It seems like weak cheese, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, is Trump guilty of breaking the law? Yes, he is. But I think that it it really uh, is not a uh, well-timed prosecution. I I think that they should allow the federal prosecution to go first and and then with this after. Right. Doesn't 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 the uh, the Fulton County D.A. in Georgia have a stronger case in terms of trying to. I, I think so. I mean, I think that those things are much more uh, significant. Both of those cases are much more significant than this one. Uh, I don't know why he's, you know, he didn't seem like he wanted to prosecute Trump at all about a year ago. And now he's rushing to be the first one. You know, I don't know why. And it makes me a little bit suspicious. Yeah. I spoke to somebody who uh, I respect immensely. I think you know this person and you respect this person immensely. This person said that you have to keep in mind that the Manhattan D.A. is elected and they poll for to see what the people want prosecuted. And as you said, initially, all these uh, guys in his office quit because he wasn't he didn't think there was a case for Trump. But the polling came back and said, you got to do something. So he chose the weakest case possible. It's pretty, uh, I mean, at worst, what does he get? A slap on the wrist? Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. A slap on the wrist. That's it. I mean, it just, it, you know, and when you think forward to what happens, if he was, if he's found innocent, I think it's sort of like, mucks up the other uh, two cases as well. Right. Right. A bit. Anyway, uh, you know, in the public eye, it, it, it sort of, I don't know. Look, I just want to see him in front of that Idaho firing squad. <laughs> for treason, right? Isn't that? For, yeah. I mean, yeah. they're charging him for like, you know, running around with some girl and paying her from a, the wrong funds. And yeah. And, and meanwhile, there's treason. Well, There are 596 days to the 2024 presidential election. He's all in. If he's indicted, will people like DeSantis and Nikki Haley say, I I think the prosecution is wrong, but he's 
distracted, he shouldn't be running for president, or are they going to stand by their man? They're going to, like, dance dance around it and do both if they can. Uh, you know, Santos today, said, early in the morning, said, I'm not getting involved in any way, shape, or form. And then a couple of hours later, he denounced uh, Bragg. Right. So, you know, there's a... You know, you know, this is probably going to make Trump a lot stronger in, in the Republican primary uh, race and weaker in the general election. So it's perfect. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy is a bigger, I don't want to use the word. Tool. I'm sorry? Tool, tool, tool. He says he's launching an investigation now into the federal funding of Alvin Bragg's office because of yeah. this. <laughs> the, the the spinelessness, the cowardless, the cowardly behavior. Craven. It knows Cravenness too. Yeah, it knows no depths. Uh, yep. Have you? Uh, well, he's not as bad. Trump isn't as well. He might. How? What could happen tomorrow here in New York? I don't think anybody in Manhattan is going to pro. I think they're going to celebrate. Trump being frog marched. We hate him. We've known Trump for 40 years. We know exactly who he is. He can't win. He can only win in Staten Island. So I don't think there's going to be. What about the, the, the bridge and tunnel crowd? That's different now than it was when I was a kid, right? I mean, the bridge and tunnel crowd, they'll probably celebrate also. Except for Staten Island. Right. Well, oh, yeah. And there is a bridge now, too. When I was a kid, there was no bridge. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but um, you know, I guess people from Suffolk County could come in. Eh, aren't they just a little too lazy to? I don't think we're going to see. I, I don't think an indictment is good. But he did call. Didn't he call out his attack dogs? Yes. He said they should uh, protest, which means kill everybody. Yeah. Never before have we had uh, a more transparent fascist, so sloppy. DeSantis, you write over down with tyranny, probably more dangerous in that he's efficient and, and knows how to use the levers of power and influence. And people are more likely to get in line. If he, God forbid, became president, he would know how to work the system the way Bush and Cheney did. Is that a fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're both really, really dangerous. I mean, Trump, you know, just had four years of, of learning uh, and he's really dangerous and full of hatred and bile and really, you know, wants to get even. He's even talked about it. And, uh, you know, DeSantis has always been a, a little fascist dog. So it's it's I mean, I shouldn't say always, but since he's been in the in the public sphere, he has been. You know, I, I just followed him, obviously, since He's been uh, in Congress, but he's really bad. So they're both really bad and they're both really fascist. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't think that I don't think Trump has, has any chance to win. Uh, whereas I'm a little bit more frightened about uh, DeSantis. People don't know who he is and they might just vote for him because they don't want Biden. Right. Right. Well, let's turn to. French President Emmanuel Macron, I was singing the praises of France all last week, how peaceful the protests have been. And this is what democracy looks like. 
Today, Emmanuel Macron narrowly survived a no-confidence vote. The people took to the streets, by, and the police. Right, by nine, by he he won by he he won by nine votes. I mean, it was really, really, really close. And the police did beat up on the protesters, not the way they do. I I don't think they did it the way our police do, but. I was surprised by how violent the French police were. I thought they accepted a modicum of protesting. Uh, well, they do. But I think that, you know, what they would say is that the protesters were, um, you know, a threat. Which they're not. Well, I don't know. I wasn't there. I mean, were they, you know, were they pushing... Uh, towards the building in, in, a, in a way that was dangerous. I, I mean, they, the, I don't know. I, I don't want to defend the police. Uh, and I don't remember the French police from my youth of being, uh, I don't remember them being gentle or anything, but uh, that's, right. that's a long time ago. I haven't had any, any uh, interaction with them in a very long time. Right. Uh, there is a way for our listeners to get a Stay Strong and Protect the Weak bumper sticker in the mail. And I'm going to tell you how to do that in just a second. But let's talk about Holland, not Hollande, the socialist prime minister of yeah. France, but Holland. Ex-prime ex minister. Ex, yes. And disappointment. Yeah. What, what happened so, in uh, Holland? Well... Actually, uh, this hasn't been uh, written much about in the U.S. or covered much, but um, Holland just had provincial elections. So you might think, well, who cares about provincial elections, elections in Holland? There are a couple of reasons for it. Well, I'm losing you there, Howie. I'm losing you. Why is that? You just went out, but now you're back. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, they I, I haven't moved, but... Um, the provincial, the, the, when they elect a provincial uh, governing body of in the uh, in the twelve provinces of, of Netherlands, uh, those bodies elect the Senate. So the upper the upper chamber of uh, of their parliament is elected by these provincial uh, parliaments, and and they just had the um, they just had the election. The other day, and and a party that had zero seats, no seats whatsoever. That it was it's a farmers' party in a, in a country where there aren't a lot of farmers, uh, and and it's just swept. It won by huge margin, and uh, it won every single province but one. And then the province Utrecht that it didn't win, it was tied for number one. So uh, and it's a right wing party. But my friend. Uh, my best friend from from Holland. I used to, I lived there for four years, so you know, so I you know know something about the country from living there that long, and my, and my closest friend still from from that time uh, is a socialist and voted for the socialists, but he he hates the um, the centrist you know, center right government so much that he was happy that this uh, this new party uh, beat them. And just, uh, you know, just shake things up. And now the, the center right government is not going to be in danger of collapsing, which is good. They've been in since uh, 2010 and they're, uh, you know, they're a bad lot. When you look at people, when you look at Europe, is the far right fever breaking? 
or is it going to get worse? And how related is it to the economy? Yeah, well, it's always related to the economy. And I, I don't know that it's breaking. Why, why, why do you think? I think it's getting worse. It is now, getting th- worse. This, uh, yeah, this party that won, they're, they're a far-right party, but they're not you – know, there are two fascist parties in Holland. One of them, she, she uh, was devastated. They, they lost tons of their, their seats, so they did really bad. And the other one didn't, was favored to do really, really well, and they didn't do anything. They just, kept, they just stayed exactly the same. So she took – when I say she, the, the head of this new party, this farmer's party, is a woman, uh, Carolyn uh, von der Plas. So she, uh, you know, she went, she, she's now, you know, going to be someone who's a contender for power in the country. Right. This woman, you know, sort of out of nowhere. Right. Well, let's, I, I want to talk about how uh, Ronald Reagan, you have a piece over down with Cherney, how Ronald Reagan committed treason stole. or stole an election. Yeah, I think so. Well, we'll, we'll come but up. We thought so at the time, uh, you know, when, when it was happening in 1980, uh, everyone felt that he was um, keeping the the hostages. Well, let's, he was let's, let's put a pin in this temporarily so we can talk about maybe a girl because we're doing a fundraiser Friday night at 8 p.m. Come meet Howie Klein as he introduces maybe a girl. She was on the show last week. She is running for Adam Schiff's, Congressman Adam Schiff's congressional seat in in and around Los Angeles, and it starts at 8 p.m. It's in the description of this episode. Just click on the description and you'll see a link. We're doing it via Zoom. It's a meetup, and you get to talk to Howie Klein and congressional candidate, maybe a girl who Howie's going to tell you about in just a second. It's free. Anybody who donates, however, will get... In the mail, a stay strong and protect the weak bumper sticker mailed to them as an added bonus. You give a dollar or ten dollars or five dollars. You all it's egalitarian. You all get a bumper sticker. Tell us about maybe a girl who was on last week and was people loved her. Oh, good. Yeah. Maybe as a local official here in, in this district where I live, she's she's on the, uh, the Silver Lake Council. She's the treasurer and an at large. She was elected at large. The first and transgender politician in America ever to get elected. Perhaps she the is. first one that we know about anyway. Yeah, yeah. And she uh, uh, you know, she the thing about her is that it's 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 pretty easy to talk about that the transgender uh, part of it and that she's a drag performer. But the, the thing is, is that she is by far the most progressive candidate running. So, and that, you know, even if she were like, you know, some guy with a beard uh, <laughs> or, or, just a, you know, just, um, you know, some cisgender woman, uh, she'd be the one just based on her policies uh, and her solutions to the problems that face uh, Los Angeles and California and the United States. She is uh, she's a really, really good candidate. And I'm very excited about her because it's my district. Now, in, in the past, 
she didn't she she's run it twice before she didn't really have much of a chance she did well but she didn't have a real uh, chance against adam schiff who's extremely popular in this district but adam is leaving uh congress to run or the house to run for the senate so it's an open seat now and there's you know a dozen people running and most of them are just sort of they go from really really awful to almost as good as maybe but not as good as maybe she's the best candidate you so, said, uh, so come by, come by on Friday, and you can ask her questions. You can hear her talk. She's very, very articulate, and uh, you know the the best. I think that the best thing to talk for her to talk about is is where she stands on on um, the important uh, things that are on her agenda. But she'll talk about anything. Yeah, and the way to attend it's very simple. Go to this. A description of this episode, wherever you're listening or watching, just go into the description of the episode. There's a Zoom link and click on it and it'll take you to the registration page. I just need your name and email and the doors open at 730. Uh, we won't start until eight and you'll meet Howie Klein. You can ask Howie Klein questions about politics and maybe 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 we'll let Howie answer some questions about Lou Reed, Stevie Nicks and all the uh, giants of rock and roll who Howie Klein has worked with uh, over the years before he became a uh, the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. Identity politics on the left. There are some people, sometimes me, where. I say, let's focus more on class struggle. Uh, and sometimes I say this, uh, and I know I'm wrong. Uh, Why? And, well, because when you look at somebody like maybe, there are currently 400, something like 435 anti-LGBTQ bills uh, that are being voted upon in America. One, one for each member of Congress. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And being transgender person in America is a is an issue. It's a political issue. It's an issue of physical safety. And more importantly, or not more important, but uh, psychological. I mean, we're talking about high suicide rates, homelessness, abuse from cops, uh, this is an issue. Her existence, her identity is the issue. There is something beautiful about sending her to Congress, not only because, I mean, I, I think you say primarily because she's so strong on all the issues, but it's also beautiful to send a transgender person to Congress. They need representation. They need representation. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, you don't want to wind up, with, and we're not going to, you, you wouldn't want to send somebody like George Santos, right. uh, who also <laughs> was a drag queen. So, I mean, he, he'll always be able to say he was the first drag queen in Congress. Uh, <laughs> but that's, that, that's not good. I mean, that's he's right. terrible, horrible. And right. she's wonderful. I mean, maybe right. fantastic. Right. So let's raise money if you, you, you can come and visit anywhere around the world you're all invited it's free you can only donate if you're an american citizen 
Or if you have a green card, I have to check. But if you're yeah. not, if no, you, that's that's true. Yes, yes. If you have a green card, you you can donate. You can donate, but you have to be an American citizen to donate. It doesn't matter if you give one dollar, five dollars, or ten dollars. You will have mail or, to or twenty dollars, and it matters to the candidate. Right. But you, it doesn't matter to win the the bumper sticker, but it does matter to the candidate. And if you can give. 10 or 20 dollars that's really really helpful especially this early in the campaign when they really need it the most yes yes a stay strong and protect the weak bumper sticker will be mailed if you donate and it doesn't matter how much you donate why is it important to donate to a candidate like maybe a girl she's going to win but you've had a lot of candidates like maybe a girl who've stopped by and some of them haven't won. I mean, Katie Porter won, but some candidates don't win. Why is it? Why are you not throwing away money when you give to candidates who are perfect, even though they might lose? Well, we don't know if they're going to lose or not. Right. For one thing. No, no one knows. I mean, you know, when when AOC won, no no one thought she was going to win. Uh, it was it was impossible. It was literally called impossible. Right. There was no chance. She had no chance. Her the person who she ran against, uh, Joe, Joe Crowley, Crowley yeah. didn't even bother. He didn't even bother to come and uh, debate her. He just sent like a lower uh, staff member to to go debate on his behalf. He he didn't take it seriously. You're, and then tor- he, he you're, you're, you're torturing me because you said to me, <laughs> tell she, you was to so, she was so wonderful, too. <laughs> you told me, hey, I've got a candidate. She's not going to win, but she's really great. And I I'm a, I'm ashamed. I said, Howie, we I, 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 let's get some candidates who are actually going to win on the show who have a chance. And I turned you know, down AOC. It's funny because when when I first talked to AOC the very first time, I said something like that. Oh, you know, you should get. You know, I was giving her some advice that she should get her name recognition up. And even though she had no chance to win this time, she might win in the future. And she, you know, really like slapped back at me in a big way. And she said, "No, I'm going to win this time." And I said, "Well, you know, how is that possible? Show me how." And right. she did. And I'll tell you something. Blue America uh, had its, some of its own money, aside from the money that we, we solicited people to send her. We also had some money of our own that people give us, and we, we, we did an independent expenditure on behalf of her campaign. And um, so even though it seemed unlikely she was going to win, we still wound up spending uh, tens of thousands of dollars to try to help her to win just because we really, really believed in her. And thought it would be like incredible if she could get it, right? And she did. Yeah, and the, the so you never so you never really know if someone is going to win or not. You know, I mean, my guess was that maybe didn't have much of a chance against Adam Schiff, and she didn't win. She she now she beat uh, eight other candidates. She came in second, and in California that put her into the general election. So she was a, a winner of the primary, right? Um, but, you know, I, I, I my guess was that she couldn't win now when there is no incumbent. She is definitely up there as a front runner. She is she is. I don't, I'm not saying the front runner, but she could be and she may be. 
and she's definitely uh, one of the one of the top people in that race. And in fact, a very important uh, local politician, a very good one as well, is the mayor of Burbank. Burbank is part of the district, and he endorsed her. Great. Yeah, that's it, it, it is great. Yeah, and again, we have new listeners. A lot of new listeners, and I would like to meet them. And one of the ways to meet them is Friday night. We've been holding meetups uh, for three years on Zoom, and it's a great way to meet the listeners, talk to them. And I can't think of a better setting than meeting some new listeners than Howie Klein and maybe a girl doing a fundraiser. And you don't have to donate if you don't want to. There's no, you don't have to. Uh, you probably will cough up a dollar or two because you'll feel better. That's what I find. The, <laughs> the powerlessness that I feel. And then when you cut a check, it's almost like a prayer. It's, it's almost a prayer to the temple of democracy when you write a check or put $5, you know, not for the corporate Democrats, but when you're giving money to somebody like maybe a girl, it's it's a it's a form of prayer. And I and I mean that. And you will feel liberated and free. It's a it's the best five dollars you can possibly spend. You, you will feel better and you'll get to stay strong and protect the weak bumper sticker. Wherever you're listening to this conversation, just check the description of the episode. You'll see a Zoom link. Sign up and meet Howie Klein and maybe a girl, let's talk about stealing elections. There are many ways to steal an election. Uh, in 1968, it is, uh, I think it's the Cheneau affair. There was a, a friend, a woman who was good friends with DM in, in uh, Vietnam, who had uh, two, President Tu's ear, and Kissinger supposedly sabotaged the 1968 Paris peace talks and said through Cheneau, don't. She said to Tu, the president of South Vietnam, who's negotiating with North Vietnam, don't make a deal. Wait till Nixon becomes president. You'll get a much better deal from Nixon than you will Humphrey. And that's pretty much settled law. There, there's tape of LBJ talking to Republican Senator Dirksen saying, you know, this is I think he used the word treason. Uh, and, and, they, and Nixon sabotaged the Paris peace talks. Tell me about Reagan, Bush, Baker, the hostages. Paint the picture of what was going on in 1980 with Jimmy Carter. Yeah, so um, we had uh, 50, I think 52 hostages that were being held in Iran and uh, Carter was trying to uh, bring them back. And uh, it looked like it was gonna happen. And the, the Reagan people were, were petrified and they were calling it an October surprise if, if, if it were to happen. And they uh, and they they managed to sabotage it. Now we all knew that at the time, but there was no proof. And what we didn't know at the time, everyone suspected that it was Casey who who then became the CIA director. He was running uh, Reagan's campaign. He was a really evil guy. 
And um, what happened was that he sent John Connolly over. Now, people don't necessarily know who John Connolly is anymore, but he was a very, very important person at the time. He went on to be governor of uh, Texas. Of Texas. You're talking about John. You talking, yeah, talking about the guy John Connolly, who was in sitting in front of who overshot, Yes, in front of uh, JFK when JFK was shot, and Texas. then he converted to with Nixon. Republican. He became a yeah. He became a Republican. Secretary he of Treasury. Ran, I think. He well, well, that was later. Yeah. He ran. Oh no. Yeah. Well, he he ran against uh, Reagan, as a matter of fact, in the primary. Right. Reagan beat him. He then wanted the job of Secretary of State or. Uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Reagan just offered him energy secretary. Uh, any Texan can get that, and he turned it down. But what did happen was that um, he went over uh, overseas, and he went to a bunch of countries that had good relations with Iran and uh, said to them, you know, go and tell the Iranians not to make a deal with Carter because Reagan will make a, a much better deal. And uh, And now that's been confirmed by someone who was with him. A uh, you know someone who he's he's he was very very close with, and who was the speaker of the House of Texas, and uh, and his business partner as well, this guy named Barnes. So now we know. Now we know. I mean, we knew, but now we now we now we know for sure. Is Barnes still alive? Yes, Barnes is still alive. He just, he just did interviews, and including the New York Times, and he told a story about what happened in great detail. Right. He's he's a truth teller about George W. too, isn't he? Uh, I, th- I don't know. I don't know what, what did he what did he have to well, say. Well, more importantly, it was almost Trumpian the way the hostages were released when on the day, on the very day, like not only the day, on the minute, the minute that Jimmy Carter was no longer president, they uh, they released them that moment. And I remember. Thinking that's suspicious, but it's so. <laughs> I remember thinking, no, that can't be. Nobody would be that blatant. But the trick is to 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 pull the crime off in front of everybody. That's yeah. the secret. That Trump learned that. Just commit the crime in front of everybody, and make everybody a witness. It, it's nobody could believe the brazenness of it. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, and uh, he is my moral compass. It's Ralph Nader and Howie Klein. Whenever I need to know how to vote, I turn to Down with Tyranny, Howie Klein's daily blog, and he is also the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. He raises money for candidates who are thoroughly vetted and you can just if Howie says to vote for them, vote for them. Occasionally you got the guy in Maine, Jared Golden. Jared Golden. Horrible, horrible, horrible. That was a mistake. We had him on the show. Uh, that was a mistake. You know, I think he was a confused guy. I mean, he told me, he, you know, he, he had a record. He did have a record as a progressive and he was in the main legislature. And he, when he got into Congress, he he actually joined the um, the Progressive Caucus, lasted for a week, and then went across the street and joined, joined the Blue Dogs. It's been horrible right. ever since, and right. it's arguable that he's the worst member of Congress now. Yeah, the uh, worst Democrat Congress. Although that there's a lot of competition for that spot.
I, I know we're out of time. I've been oh, looking so at time and I'm going to make dinner now. But but before you go, I've been looking at who voted for the war authorization in 2002 to go into Iraq. It's quite remarkable. Nancy Pelosi voted against the war authorization. She was the whip. And that's how she that's how she became the uh, the head of the Democrats, by the way, by going up against uh, uh, what's his name from St. Louis? Um, Gephardt. So Gephardt was the leader of the Democrats. And and by opposing and Nancy was number two. And by opposing him and bringing most of the Democrats along with her, she she pretty much ended his career. And then and that's how she wound up taking over. And he became a lobbyist. Turned his, he was the big yep. union guy and then lobbied yep. to bust unions. Richard Gephardt, Dick Gephardt, is a dick with no heart. Yep. Nancy Pelosi, her statement on why she isn't voting for the war authorization was masterful. I mean, we always trash her on the show, but she said, I don't believe there's any evidence that he has weapons of mass destruction. War will not make us safer I don't trust George W. Bush. Adam Schiff voted for the war authorization. Uh, Ms. Lee up in Oakland voted against Afghanistan, didn't she? She did. She was the only member of Congress to do that. And the Taliban did not attack us on 9-11. Fact. They did not attack us on 9-11. Afghanistan did not attack us on 9-11. Fact, one person among, what is it, 535? What's the number? 435. 435 plus the Senate. 535? Oh, right. 535, that's right. One person out of 535 people is right and the rest can be wrong. I think she deserves to be a senator because of that. I like Katie Porter. I like Adam Schiff. But I think Congresswoman Lee out of Oakland, uh, for that vote alone, she deserves to be. Well, and it's not just I mean, yes, I agree with you for that vote alone. But it's not like she's got a, a bad record on other stuff. She's great on everything. She's really, really good. And if the election were today, I'd, I'd vote for her. I have to go make dinner. Go. I love you. Howie Klein, thank you so much. We'll see Howie Klein Friday night at 8 p.m. Doors open. We'll open the doors around 7.30. We'll start at 8 p.m. And it's a fundraiser version of Office Hours. You're all invited. And you'll meet Howie Klein and candidate for Adam Schiff's congressional seat in Los Angeles. Maybe a girl. She is the first elected transgender politician in American history. She serves on the Silver Lake Council in Los, in Howie's neighborhood. And she's right on all the issues. Wherever you're listening right now, podcast, YouTube, wherever, check the description of this episode. You'll see a link and you just need to click on it to register to come and do a meetup with Howie Klein and maybe a girl. Howie has said that he'll take some questions about Lou Reed. He'll answer some questions about Jimi Hendrix and uh, Stevie Nicks and all the 
for our new listeners, Howie ran Reprise Records and Warner Records and Concert Promoter and then moved into politics and uh, pretty much the same type of business. If you donate any money, you will get a Stay Strong and Protect the Weak bumper sticker mailed to you. Okay, please like this episode. The only reason there is only one reason you are listening to this right now. Somebody, a friend, either emailed you a link to a previous episode or shared the link on their social media. If you enjoy any of our programs, please share the links with your friends uh, through email or social media. It's the only way uh, anybody finds out about this show. Nobody, <laughs> nobody is promoting it. Nobody. Sam Cedar is promoting it. Uh, but nobody's promoting this show. So the only way uh, you can help me is by promoting it. And I would love to meet all of you. We have new listeners. I would love to talk, see what's on your mind. And also leave a comment in the comments section down below, because I read every single comment and you can tell that I read your comment if there's a heart next to it. However, I sometimes if I'm like on the subway or something, I can't hit the heart, but I read everything. And you might notice that your comments trigger ideas and topics for this show. So I find the comments incredibly valuable, especially the ones that are, you know, have citations or, or hyperlinks. So once again, we're doing a fundraiser, 8 p.m. Friday night, office hours for Maybe a Girl, Come Meet Maybe a Girl and Howie Klein, and then we'll hang out for a while. Maybe some other of our regulars on the show have said they'd pop in after to talk and you can meet them. It's a lot of fun. It really is. And you'll meet great people. Please like this. Uh, please share it. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. And I won't have to remind you to stay strong and protect the weak if you donate, if you come Friday night at 8 p.m. and uh, donate to Maybe a Girly. Then you don't have to hear me remind you to stay strong and protect the weak. You'll have a bumper sticker to remind you. We're going to post the link also on my website tomorrow. But right now, it's in the description of the show. Be nice to everybody. Stay strong and protect the weak. Hello. 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 I, uh, <laughs> I remember being in Vegas and they had all these like birds that can talk, like parrots or whatever. And there was one that would just say, hello, it was so creepy. I still have nightmares. Hello. Normally they're supposed to go, hello, hello. This one would just go, hello, hello. This week we celebrate, mark the 20th anniversary of George W. Bush's illegal invasion of Iraq. This is the week we mark the 20th anniversary of George W. Bush's illegal invasion of Iraq. But somehow the ex-president about to get perped 
walked this week is Donald Trump. Interesting. I think uh, the feds might have forgotten about an ex-president living down in Texas. What do you think? Leave a comment in the comment section below. I read all your comments and it helps shape my program. I'm David Feldman. This is The Mop Up. The United Nations was correct before 9-11 and after 9-11. It was correct before we invaded Iraq and after we invaded Iraq. America, on the other clenched fist, America got everything wrong, everything. And that would mostly be George W. Bush's fault. From ignoring intelligence briefings that warned bin Laden was determined to bring down buildings using hijacked jets, to bombing and then invading Afghanistan, to blaming bombing and invading Iraq, our 22-year war on terrorism turned us into the terrorists. It turned our military into unsupervised sadists, murderers, and rapists. We did everything wrong. And by any measure of international law, this foolish war on terror that continues to this day has made us less safe while making all Americans citizens of a rogue nation. We are a rogue nation because of this war on terror that will not end. This is from Brown University's Cost of War. I recommend it highly. 38 million, that's what Brown University says, is the number of war refugees and displaced persons from George W. Bush's War on Terror. Brown University says over 929,000 people have died. Lancet, the British Medical Journal, would disagree. They would much higher. The cost of war over Brown University says more than 387,000 civilians have been killed as a result of the fighting. We have spent, America has spent $5.6 trillion. Uh, the 387,000 civilians, that's way too low. We, America has spent $5.6 trillion on the war in Iraq. And because the war was funded almost entirely through debt, interest costs on the war in Iraq could be at least $7 trillion by 2053. Let's look at more from Brown University's The Cost of War. They're getting some numbers a little low from, uh, from what I've been reading. The War on Terror, the U.S. government says Brown University is conducting counter-terror activities in 85 countries. Who authorized that? The Brown University Cost of War study says more than 7,050 U.S. soldiers have died in these wars. I don't know what that means. Uh, that's not even close to, uh, that doesn't, 
that's not right. So let me let me move on. Uh, that is too vague. Sorry about that. Well, America is my country. And while I take responsibility for what we have done, as you all should here in America, the real villain, the real villains who caused all this suffering, Bush, Cheney, Rice, Wolfowitz, Fife, Libby, and Fleischer, McClellan, have yet to apologize or be held accountable. Donald Rumsfeld and Colin Powell died, never forced to answer for themselves. I am an American, and we cannot heal until we have a reckoning with the destruction we have inflicted on others and ourselves. This war on terror, Bush's, Cheney's war on terror, flushed 22 years down the toilet. I demand justice. Those who say, why litigate the past? are not forgiving. You are not a forgiving, benevolent soul by saying, why litigate the past? You are enabling future war crimes to come. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, well, they continued long, long after they disappeared off our front pages. It silently began to infect our politics leaving voters confused as to why we are so divided, so sad and broken. I believe Bush's unnecessary and illegal invasion of Iraq, his wanton disregard for human life overseas, unleashed a wanton disregard for human life here at home. America lost its way after the Supreme Court handed the presidency to George W. Bush. At the time, we thought it was just going to be a short four-year hiccup. Instead, George W. Bush's ignorance, arrogance, and thirst for vengeance, cloaked in religion and homespun nationalism, drained our entire country of all hope and stature. Besides being a war criminal several times over, George W. Bush is without a doubt the most destructive president this country ever had. Trump, who they're going to frog march tomorrow, doesn't even come close. In 2001, Bill Clinton handed George W. Bush, George W. Bush, a Republican who ran as the fiscal conservative, in 2001, Bill Clinton handed George W. Bush a budget surplus. I know that term is alien to most Americans these days. So just in case you think you didn't hear me correctly, George W. Bush took office with a $230 billion budget surplus, the largest in American history. Some of my older listeners might remember the term lockbox during the 2000 debates. If you remember, Gore and Bush were arguing over what to do with all that extra money the government had lying around. Extra money lying around. Gore wanted to put it in a lockbox. 
But Bush decided, after he got elected, to give the wealthy and powerful tax cuts. And he marshaled an army of phony economists who told the rich and the powerful what they wanted to hear. These economists guaranteed that you can fight two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that's how you pay for it all, by lowering taxes. It made absolutely no sense. Fight two wars, pay for it by lowering taxes. It made no sense. But hey, if you're rich, shut your mouth and take the money. Like I said, the cost of the war is astronomical. We'll be uh, paying for this. Uh, the interest alone could be as much as, what, $8 trillion by the time we're done paying off this, uh, this war in Iraq? $8 trillion, just an interest alone. Forget the human suffering. That's just too painful for me to think about right now. Where is the accountability, the shame, the apology, and most importantly, as we're about to frog march Donald Trump, where is the criminal prosecution? Trump is going on trial this week for paying hush money to a porn star while Bush is on his Texas ranch painting and clearing brush. Don't get me wrong, Donald Trump belongs in prison along with the rest of that family of his. But in terms of sheer numbers, no American president has ever come close to inflicting as much damage to America and the world as George W. Bush. These days, he paints his wounded soldiers instead of penning instead of penning a dispatch to future generations and how never to repeat his presidency. Trading off her family name, Bush's daughter earns millions these days hosting the Today Show while insisting her dad is just a goofball and fun-loving, doting father. Ah, you know, I'm sure he is because evil comes in spurts. Evil comes in spurts. I'm also told visitors to the wolf's lair couldn't get over what a gracious host Adolf Hitler turned out to be. In the end, a republic, a democracy, is only as good as its leadership and no amount of civic responsibility can turn the tide on pure, unadulterated evil. No president in modern American history was capable of George W. Bush's evil. It was unimaginable that anybody could be as evil as George W. Bush. Even Lyndon Baines Johnson, who lied, who lied us into Vietnam, even LBJ had the human decency to realize the war was wrong and he refused to run for re-election. 
Vietnam was evil, but at least LBJ gave us Medicare, Medicaid, as well as the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65. George W. Bush gave us nothing but death. Katrina and capitalism. He literally killed capitalism in 2008. George W. Bush gave us nothing but death. He did not deserve to be reelected. And it was his reelection campaign of 2004 that created today's political climate. He fired federal attorneys who wouldn't bring phony voter fraud cases. He put anti-LGBTQ measures on state ballots that would energize all the conservatives who were disappointed by the way Iraq was turning out. So he figured, put some anti-LGBTQ measures on the ballot and the conservatives, the Republicans will come out vote their intolerance for the LGBTQ and stick around and vote for the Cretan, George W. Bush. He also, the draft dodger, George W. Bush, ran an off-the-books character assassination of John Kerry and his record in Vietnam, a war Bush's father pulled countless strings. So W., could sit it out. There are bad people, and they must be identified, labeled bad and evil, so we can protect ourselves from them. George W. Bush is evil. Dick Cheney is evil. There is evil in this world, and these two men Dick Cheney and George W. Bush are as evil as all the guilty men on death row combined and then multiply it by one million dead Iraqi citizens. How did Bush and Cheney get away with this? Well, even after the lessons from Vietnam, it still remained impossible for some, for some, to imagine the depths of depravity lurking within the Bush White House. These two, Bush and Cheney, were masters of subterfuge. They were way too efficient at back-channel intimidation and manipulation. Their resumes betrayed their claims to being Washington outsiders. They knew exactly how the system worked because they were the system. A nonprofit journalism group conducted a far reaching and meticulous study in 2008 and concluded that in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq, Bush and seven of his top advisors, including Vice President Cheney, Condi Rice, Ari Fleischer, and Scott McClellan, together made 935 false statements, 935 false statements about Iraq having WMDs, 935 false statements about Iraq being close to having WMDs, 
935 false statements about Iraq playing a major role in 9-11. A lot of this, a lot of these lies were told during congressional testimony. Where is the criminal prosecution? This is from the Center of Public Integrity. They wrote in 2008 that, let me pull this up. That's not how you do it, moron. Here we go. Uh, The Center for Public Integrity in 2008 wrote in speeches, briefings, interviews, testimony, testimony. That means they swore to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth under the threat of perjury. In speeches, briefings, interviews, testimony, Bush, along with Secretary of State Colin Powell, Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz, and White House Press Secretaries Ari Fleischer and Scott McClellan stated unequivocally that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction or was trying to produce or obtain them. Links to Al-Qaeda, links to Al-Qaeda, or both. The, The war, this war in Iraq alone, the war in Iraq just by itself, makes George W. Bush a criminal. But, as usual, the only ones forced to pay the price were our soldiers, the Iraqi people, and, of course, the American taxpayer. The United Nations was correct back then, and the United Nations is correct right now about Ukraine, which is why we should only be listening to Secretary General Antonio Guterres and ignore Joe Biden, as well as everyone else in the American government, on issues of war and peace. Because on issues of war and peace, our entire government, media, and houses of higher learning have clearly lost their last remaining tatters of moral authority. There is no moral authority in America anywhere when it comes to issues of war and peace. So this week, we mark the 20th anniversary of George W. Bush's illegal criminal invasion of Iraq. I'd call it the single worst thing America ever did to another country that never attacked us, but that's unfair to Afghanistan, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, all of whom never attacked us either. What makes Iraq different is it's also the single worst thing America has ever done to itself. So nothing comes close. Absolutely nothing. Some thoughts on Afghanistan. You really can't understand how Iraq happened until you understand why there are some Americans who think I erred just now by including Afghanistan in my list of countries we invaded, even though they never attacked us. I know this is difficult for most Americans. Afghanistan never attacked us on 9-11. They had nothing to do with it. Both presidential candidates, Barack Obama and John Kerry, lied when they said Iraq was the bad war 
Afghanistan the good one. Both wars were the bad ones. Americans would know that if, to paraphrase David Swanson, all war wasn't a lie. Donald Trump did one thing for America. In 2016, he made it settled law in the Republican Party that the invasion of Iraq was a disastrous mistake, while at the same time debasing and humiliating Jeb Bush for even entertaining the idea that anyone in that family deserved to sit at the head table inside the Situation Room. While I do look forward to Trump's criminal prosecution, this, this was no small achievement. And while most Americans now no longer think Iraq was behind 9-11, they still mistakenly believe Afghanistan and the Taliban were. It's a 21-year-old lie that's going to take some time in revealing because American journalists, politicians, and generals remain totally unreliable fonts of Pentagon-fueled propaganda. Decades from now, the American people will finally learn how the Taliban, just like Saddam Hussein, had absolutely nothing to do with 9-11. Americans will one day learn Bush knew all along Afghanistan and Iraq had absolutely nothing to do with 9-11, but went ahead anyway and laid waste to entire peoples while our infrastructure crumbled at home. Right after the invasion of Iraq, a popular refrain heard among neoconservatives who never served a day in the military was, this is what they were saying, everyone wants to go to Baghdad, but real men want to go to Tehran. Real men want to go into Iran. No. Some men, knowing exactly who was responsible for 9-11, wanted to go to Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, but the real men, they wanted to stay home. We had no business attacking Iraq or Afghanistan after 9-11. As I just said, back in 2008, Barack Obama got elected running on the lie, the lie that America dropped the ball by invading Iraq because he lied Afghanistan, quote, was ground zero for any war on terrorism. That's what Barack Obama said when he was running for election in 2008. Afghanistan is ground zero for any war on terrorism. That was and remains a lie, especially because 19 of the 9-11 hijackers came from Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Lebanon, and Egypt. None of the hijackers were from Iraq or Afghanistan. Zero. Most, if not all, of 9-11 was financed by Saudi Arabia. Afghanistan couldn't possibly fund 9-11, 
because it couldn't fund Afghanistan, which is why just three weeks ago, a U.S. judge ruled that 9-11 families were not entitled to half of Afghanistan's $7 billion in frozen assets because the country, the judge ruled, was never a state sponsor of terrorism. Saudi Arabia is a de facto state sponsor of terrorism, and it should have been their assets frozen after 9-11. It should have been their assets turned over to the families of the victims. Now, granted, the ruling party at the time in Afghanistan was the Taliban, and they did provide haven to Osama bin Laden during the lead up to 9-11. But so did other countries, especially Pakistan and bin Laden's homeland, Saudi Arabia, which financed the whole thing. After 9-11, one would think, why not invade Saudi Arabia? I mean, if Americans wanted revenge after 9-11, we were way more within our rights invading Saudi Arabia. But funny thing about Saudi Arabia, they're our friends. Yeah, the country behind 9-11, our buddies. We all have friends like that, right? Friends you help, and they say thanks by trying to destroy you. We were best friends forever with the Saudis, so much so that Ten years before they attacked us on 9-11, we fought a war against Iraq primarily to protect them from getting invaded after Saddam laid claim to Kuwait. We couldn't invade Saudi Arabia after 9-11 because it would look like that entire first Gulf War was all for naught, which it was. It would look like it was all for naught if the country we fought to protect returned the favor by flying jets into our Pentagon and World Trade Center, which, by the way, they did. Osama bin Laden, born in Saudi Arabia, financed 9-11 by Saudi Arabia. Most of my listeners already know that Saudi-born Osama bin Laden and his Saudi princes, of which there are thousands, and they funded his endeavors with their vast reserves of petrodollars, they all believed, all these Saudis, the princes, bin Laden, they all believed their homeland had been soiled by American soldiers who bin Laden referred to as infidels. Indeed, Bin Laden clearly stated that one of the chief reasons he attacked us was because of the 500,000 American soldiers living in Saudi Arabia during Desert Storm. Turns out we're not the only ones who have a problem with foreigners flooding our border. Okay, so that's Saudi Arabia. Now, why didn't we invade Pakistan after 9-11? Pakistan, like Saudi Arabia, had more to do with 9-11 than Afghanistan or Iraq, which in case you forgot, had nothing to do with 9-11. Nothing. 
Before 9-11 and after, Pakistan harbored and harbors a much larger network of terrorists than Afghanistan or Iraq combined. One of those terrorists Pakistan harbored was Osama bin Laden. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that Osama was safely tucked away in Abbottabad, Pakistan, when our CIA finally tracked him down and killed him in 2011. You might be surprised, however, to learn that immediately afterwards, immediately after bin Laden was killed, Dr. Shaquille Afridi, the Pakistani medic who played a major role in identifying and then killing bin Laden, well, after bin Laden was killed, Dr. Shaquille Afridi was sentenced to 33 years in prison by Pakistan's government on charges of treason. He languishes languishes there in prison to this day because Osama bin Laden remains a very popular figure in certain parts of Pakistan. So why didn't we invade Pakistan after 9-11? We couldn't because it became an impregnable nuclear power in 1998. The chief reason for invading Iraq in 2003, 20 years ago, was to keep it from becoming a nuclear power. And while Iraq never was a nuclear power, it's not because Pakistan didn't try to help it become one. In fact, Pakistan's chief nuclear scientist, Abdul Qadir Khan, A.Q. Khan, the father of Pakistan's atomic bomb, well, Before 9-11, he created a vast and profitable network for himself and his country by selling and trading nuclear secrets and equipment with Iraq, as well as Iran, as well as Libya and North Korea. And before 9-11, our CIA already knew A.Q. Khan, Khan, his name is Abdul Qadir Khan, father of the atomic bomb, in Pakistan. Before 9-11, our CIA already knew Khan was selling and trading the nuclear equipment and secrets with the tacit approval of Pakistan's government. So if Bush really wanted to stop the spread of nuclear weapons in Iraq or anywhere else, He should have started by invading Pakistan and grabbing Abdul Qadir Khan, who was eventually placed under house arrest in 2004 when he finally admitted what everyone in Pakistan already knew, that he was proliferating nuclear secrets around the world. When he did plead guilty, he insisted, I was just following orders orders from my prime minister. He was eventually released after just five years, house arrest, five years, house arrest, and died in 2021, hailed in Pakistan as a national hero. 
I'm absolutely certain no such scientist turned national hero ever existed in Iraq or Afghanistan before we invaded them. So clearly, Pakistan and Saudi Arabia were the worthy targets after 9-11. I would have opposed that, but if you're looking for a worthy target, it's Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. Or the Bush family compound in Kenny Bunkport, but that's for another episode. We, we knew who to blame. It was Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. But an administration, but an administration of warmongering draft dodgers, an administration of warmongering draft dodgers was only going to pick a fight with countries they knew they could beat. And it turns out they couldn't even do that. Bush and Cheney couldn't even win in Iraq or Afghanistan. Afghanistan and Iraq got picked out of the chorus line because they both had piddling militaries. That's why we picked a fight with them. Even more importantly, their economies, their economies were so inconsequential, there was more money for Wall Street in destroying and rebuilding Afghanistan and Iraq than there was in forming in, in forming peaceful economic partnerships that fostered trade and jobs. It was more profitable to just destroy and rebuild Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan. Bush knew that when it came to attacking Iraq and Afghanistan, there would be no, no economic or military downside except for our soldiers, the innocent people living in those countries, and of course, American taxpayers who, as I mentioned earlier, will end up paying seven, eight, nine trillion dollars just on the interest alone for George W. Bush's deficit-financed war on terrorism. Remember, this is the idiot who told America that you could pay for a war, two wars, and a global war on terror by lowering taxes. Had a budget surplus when he took office. To review, because I know so much of this is hard to keep straight. To review, immediately after 9-11, the two countries America needed to worry about were Pakistan for harboring terrorists, as well as assisting rogue nations in becoming nuclear powers. The other country was Saudi Arabia for allowing its princes to use their vast reserves of petrodollars to finance Osama bin Laden's attacks on America. But instead... America attacked the two countries who had nothing, nothing to do with 9-11. And do not tell me I am dishonoring our soldiers who served in Iraq and Afghanistan because they already know what I'm telling you. They know they were lied to. And they also know you were lied to. 
If George Bush were telling the truth, he wouldn't have feared putting al-Qaeda on trial. That's why it's really important to note Osama bin Laden was not captured. He was killed. Last August, his second-in-command, Ayman al-Zarhari, was also killed. I'm sorry, Dr. Ayman al-Zarhari. I, I forgot. The man is a healer, an ophthalmologist, I believe. You'd think he would have done something about Mullah Omar's eye, but uh, we digress. Uh, let me ask you, wouldn't you want to bring these two in alive? But no trials for them or any of the masterminds of 9-11 who are being held to this day in Guantanamo Bay. Why? Why? Weren't we spreading democracy? Isn't the cornerstone of democracy the right to a free and public trial? The Geneva Conventions say these masterminds must go on trial or it's a war crime. Gitmo, according to the Geneva Conventions, is a war crime. Forget the waterboarding. Just not giving these men trials is a war crime. 9-11 was never going to be prosecuted in an open court of law because our government wasn't interested in getting to the bottom of it because they already knew the bottom of it and they didn't want us to know it. That is why immediately after 9-11, when the Taliban repeatedly, and I do mean repeatedly, offered up Osama bin Laden, they knew where o Osama bin Laden was hanging out. They repeatedly offered up bin Laden with the caveat that America had to agree to stop the air attacks. We were bombing Afghanistan right after 9-11. And more importantly, we had to agree to put Osama bin Laden on trial in a third country. Bush rejected the idea. He said there was no need for a trial. In the days immediately following 9-11, when the Taliban was offering to turn over Osama bin Laden, Bush told the Taliban and the American people, there is no need to discuss it. We know he's guilty. Just turn him over. There's nothing to negotiate about. They're harboring a terrorist and they need to turn him over. Sounds like the, the Taliban were uh, more reasonable than George W. Bush. I mean, the Taliban, you got to give them credit for being, uh, you know, for being incredibly unreasonable, batshit, crazy religious zealots. They were pretty reasonable. The Taliban did not brag or take credit for 9-11. They had a government to run. Bin Laden, however, did. And he was up in the hills of Afghanistan. They didn't sanction the attacks. Why would they? They knew what would happen. The Taliban knew exactly what would happen if they were behind 9-11. Bin Laden took credit for 
repeatedly. There should have been trials. It would have kept us safer and it would have continued the goodwill our entire planet expressed for us, including Iran, right after the attacks on 9-11. We needed at the time to model the right behavior. We needed after 9-11 to signal to the world that even though America has been attacked, even though we can destroy the world several times over, even though we can do all that, instead, we choose to put the rule of international law first. Wouldn't that have been nice? That, and only that, would have built on the moral authority bequeathed to us after the Second World War. Instead, war criminal George W. Bush squandered everything his predecessors, including his father, who, like other World War II Navy veterans, President Jack Kennedy and President Richard Nixon, they all carried on Franklin Roosevelt's vision of making America safe by making it a respected global partner. George W. Bush destroyed all of that. 20 years ago this week, George W. Bush, war criminal, lied. And too many of us believed him. And I am ashamed to tell you, I sort of, almost, kind of, in a way, didn't believe him, but I kept saying nobody could be that evil. Nobody would lie this way and, and, and drum up a, a fake war. I just, I just, I can't imagine he being that evil. And 72% of Americans, 72% of Americans 20 years ago tonight supported shock and awe. They told Gallup they, they supported the invasion of Iraq, 72% of Americans, and they gave President George W. Bush a war criminal. They gave him a 76% approval rating 20 years ago tonight. But the rest of the world didn't. The rest of the world did not approve. What so many Americans forget is that only America and Tony Blair believed Colin Powell's lies when he went before the UN General Assembly, claiming the war was necessary because Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and was linked to 9-11. The rest of the world, including Powell's entire audience that day at the United Nations, except Tony Blair, the rest of the world, except Tony Blair, saw right through Colin Powell, and they refused to sign on. The rest of the world refused to join the Coalition of the Willing, as it was called back then. We went in there alone with Tony Blair. A week before the invasion, 
United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan warned that the war, the invasion of Iraq, was not sanctioned by the UN Security Council and was in direct violation of the UN Charter. When asked immediately after the invasion if Bush's folly was, quote unquote, illegal, was it illegal? The UN Secretary General Kofi Annan said, quote, yes. At the same time, while, while we're during the buildup to the war, while Colin Powell was lying at the UN and the Bush administration was telling, what was it, close to a thousand lies, sometimes under oath, while all this was going on, France, Germany, Russia, and China along with foreign ministers from 22 Arab nations, but not Tony Blair. They all said they would offer zero assistance in the war effort. They pled, they pleaded with Bush to wait for the weapons inspectors to finish their job. Pope John Paul II joined the chorus saying, quote, no to war. War, the Pope said, is not always inevitable. He added, war is always a defeat for humanity. Pope John Paul II, on the eve of America's criminal invasion of Iraq, said, war is always a defeat for humanity. Four years later, parenthetically, and somewhat to his credit, Tony Blair converted to Catholicism. Just thought I'd mention that. Uh, perhaps had he been, had he undergone the conversion five years earlier, uh, we still would have invaded Iraq, but Tony Blair wouldn't have needed so many facelifts and uh, anyway, he got Iraq war. He got Iraq wrong. God, I hate Tony Blair. Panama Papers, anyone? How many, how many offshore accounts? Uh, Tony Blair got Iraq wrong. Uh, or he knew it was wrong, but went along while the rest of the entire world got it completely right. We forget that the entire world, except for Tony Blair, got Iraq right. They knew George W. Bush was a liar and a criminal. And some Americans knew it. As Bush's war drums grew deafening, millions around the world took to the streets, forming the largest anti-war movement since Vietnam, some say even bigger. On the eve of the invasion, the New York Times famously wrote, quote, there may still be two, two superpowers on the planet, the United States and world public opinion. Millions of Americans also took to the streets. In New York City alone, right before the invasion, 200,000 
New Yorkers protested in below freezing weather. And I can assure you we won't be out there tomorrow when Donald Trump is frog-marched. We know him too well. Even George W. Bush's father, even George W. Bush's father had serious misgivings about invading Iraq and tried to explain privately to his idiot son why he, in 1991, kept Saddam Hussein in power after kicking him out of Kuwait. Brent Scowcroft, the national security advisor during the first Gulf War under George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, penned an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal six months before the invasion. And it was very uh, subtle. Uh, it was entitled, Don't Attack Saddam. <laughs> Apparently, Brent Scowcroft met George W. Bush and knew that you have to talk to him like an effing dog. Don't attack Saddam. That was the headline in the Wall Street Journal. I can't make this any clearer. Paramecium brain. Don't attack Saddam. But as the invasion neared, the people who knew it was wrong, who could have stopped it, people like Scowcroft and George Herbert Walker Bush, they all fell silent and got in line. Secretary of State Colin Powell, who served in Vietnam and was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the first Gulf War, he knew, he knew invading Iraq again was a bad idea. And he also knew that he, he himself had the political capital to stop it. But instead, like I said, he went before the United Nations and lied. He knew he was lying, and he failed to convince the world. They, they didn't believe him. There was never any inevitability to our invasion of Iraq. Iraq, the war in Iraq, was the antithesis to World War I. World War I, where nations obeyed a series of protocols and treaties and marched mindlessly into an unstoppable conflagration. That was World War I. With Iraq, it was just one nation, America. And Tony Blair, who refused to follow the rules of international law. The rest of the world, except Tony Blair, they refused to cooperate and even though America was wrong, it's important to remember the world order set up by Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, it held steady. But for America, the war in Iraq was Bush's choice. It could have been prevented, but the right people remained silent. The right people remained silent, and that makes them forever wrong. A newly elected president, John F. Kennedy, told Canadian lawmakers in 1961, 
that he had a problem with the adage, quote, he didn't like this quote. It's misattributed, misattributed. It's, it's, people think it was Edmund Burke who said this. He didn't. But this is the adage that uh, JFK did not like. Quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. JFK didn't like that. He didn't like the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Kennedy, in his speech in Canada, as he so often does, offered up wisdom for the ages. He said, and the syntax is a little off, so you might want to rewind this. Uh, it's flowery speech, so it may not be clear. So again, he's attacking the adage, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. This is what he said. The thing that strikes you about this saying on a moment's reflection is how little sense it makes. The silence of good men isn't the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil. The persons advancing the evil, whether in command or the rank and file, must be strong and determined. And the lukewarm must be either cowed into submission or willing to go along because the evil seems to prosper. It's poetic, but obtuse. The lukewarm must be either cowed into submission or willing to go along because the evil seems to prosper. If you don't quite grasp what he's trying to say, it's his fault. So let, let, as they say, let me uh, unpack this, tease this out. Uh, okay, the lukewarm. The lukewarm must be either cowed into submission or willing to go along because the evil seems to prosper. Is there any word better than lukewarm to describe the Americans who fully recognize something evil is about to or is happening, but refuse to jeopardize their standing in the community by speaking up and out against evil? The lukewarm. The lukewarm. Rewind this or look it up. It's so, it's so poetic. The persons advancing the evil, whether in command or the rank and file, must be strong and determined. And the lukewarm, the lukewarm must be either cowed into submission or willing to go along because the evil seems to prosper. The lukewarm. He was something else. So in the immediate weeks leading up to the invasion of Iraq, America's lukewarm got on board while our corporate controlled media silenced our bravest voices seasoned by previous wars and the Pentagon Papers. You couldn't hear from them on the eve of destruction. The truly moral and patriotic voices were banished and ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN and MSNBC 
They embedded their reporters with the invading army so they could only be able to repeat carefully crafted, upbeat talking points fed to them by the Pentagon. At home, the television anchors sought guidance and analysis from retired generals secretly working as lobbyists for weapons manufacturers. 20 years ago, tonight, not one single person was permitted on network television, not one, to say, this won't end well because we're attacking the wrong country. Not one. Instead, 20 years ago tonight, Americans were fed a steady diet of war profiteer propaganda. Five years after the invasion, while the war was still going on, the New York Times published an expose on how Pentagon and weapons makers put former high-ranking members of the military out front on network television to deliver false and buoyant assessments on how things are going in Iraq. The Times wrote, for example, John C. Garrett is a retired Marine colonel and unpaid analyst for Fox News TV and radio. He is also a lobbyist at Patton Boggs, who helps firms win Pentagon contracts, including in Iraq. And this continues to this day. CNN, MSNBC, they are constantly interviewing retired generals who never reveal that they work for the military-industrial complex. Even our best and our brightest reporters like Dan Rather and, sadly, Christopher Hedges on the eve of the invasion, turned lukewarm. I love Christopher Hitch, uh, Christopher Christopher Hedges. Christopher Hitchens. Oh, I, that's a whole other story. He was, he ended up all in on the invasion. Christopher Hedges. Right before the invasion, this pains me. Right before the invasion, Christopher Hedges, then working as a New York Times reporter, helped frontline. PBS Frontline, in the production of a documentary where Hedges personally, on screen, presented evidence suggesting that Saddam Hussein might have helped train the 9-11 terrorists. I love Christopher Hedges. I, get, I read all his books. It proves even the best can be suckered by evil. Even the best among us can be suckered by evil. Six days after 9-11, a tear-stricken CBS anchor, Dan Rather, abandoned all pretense of journalistic ethics by telling David Letterman, quote, George Bush is the president. He makes the decisions and, you know, as just one American, wherever he wants me to line up, just tell me where. Well, you weren't just one American. You were the anchor of the CBS Evening News. I have tremendous respect for Dan Rather, and he's made amends for this. But right after 
was Dan Rather's responsibility to remind Letterman's crowd that our Constitution specifically gives war-making powers to Congress, not the president. When commanders-in-chief act unilaterally, we end up with situations like, I don't know, Iraq. Our Congress, pretty lukewarm. On October 11th, 2002, both houses gave President Bush a lukewarm authorization to invade Iraq, believing Bush would exhaust all other options before choosing the military one. The lukewarm authorization passed in the Senate, 77 to 23, and 296 to 133 in the House. There were a lot of people who knew Bush was lying, including JFK's brother, Teddy Kennedy. Teddy Kennedy voted against the war authorization. The war authorization, this was not a vote for war. It was instead a vote signifying confidence that George W. Bush, a draft dodger, would make the right decision on Iraq. The war authorization, this was not a vote for war. It was a lukewarm Congress abdicating any blame and responsibility should Bush go to war, and it turned out the way it did. They were voting not to be blamed for the war. The war authorization was not a vote for war. It was a lukewarm vote for political cover, which is why Bush insisted it be taken before the midterms before the midterms in 2002, remember we invaded in 2003, the war authorization, Bush made, tricked everybody into voting on it before the midterms. After the midterms would have been different because in a lame duck session, lukewarm politicians can safely turn the heat up to boil with zero political implications. The Democrats, this is something people forget. And I, and I, this makes me, I'm sorry, but it, it makes me angry. The Democrats had control of the Senate in 2002 when the war authorization was passed. It was a democratically controlled Senate that gave George W. Bush his war authorization no authorization, no war, period. Now, we all remember Colin Powell earlier as the one man in America who could have stopped the war. You know, he had the political capital and the charisma. All he had to do was do something cinematic at the UN, hold up that vial, that fake vial of anthrax and say, folks, this is bullshit, well, that only happens in movies. But we always think Colin Powell was the only one who could have stopped the invasion. But there was another Vietnam veteran with even more political power and influence who could have stopped the invasion of Iraq. He was Senate Majority Leader and Democrat Tom Daschle. Ralph Nader ran for president in 2000 because Democrats had become a party of corporate stooges. 
Tom Daschle, two years later, proved him right. Daschle, Senator Tom Daschle, Democrat, Senate Majority Leader in 2002, had all the power, all the power to stop the war authorization. He could have insisted it take place, the vote take place, after the midterms, when members of his own party didn't have to worry about appearing weak on defense. Instead, he agreed to take the vote right before the midterms, figuring it would help Democrats on Election Day if they were portrayed as being just as hawkish on war as the Republicans. It was political calculus at play. Daschle, unlike Ted Kennedy, voted for the war authorization. Well, not only was the Senate majority leader who could have stopped the war, not only was he completely wrong about the war authorization, he was also excruciatingly wrong on the political expediency of making Democrats vote before the midterms. It's a stupid move. Weeks later, Republicans won back the Senate, and two years later, Daschle lost re-election. But George W. Bush got the war authorization. So what does Tom Daschle do after he loses re-election in 2004 while the war has turned completely south and he knows he made a mistake? What does he do? What does the one man who could have stopped the Iraq war by refusing to hold the vote before the midterms, have it take place after the midterms in a lame duck session where there's more courage to be found in the Democratic Party? What does he do after it becomes abundantly clear he was wrong for supporting the war? Well, Tom Daschle took a job on K Street and became a lobbyist for the health insurance companies. That's how he did penance for voting for the war authorization, by becoming a lobbyist for the health insurance companies. Tom Daschle, Democrat, no pangs of regret, no interest in spending his free time working to end the killing in Iraq. Instead, he signed up on K Street to continue the killing in America by lobbying for the health insurance companies. The definition, Tom Daschle, is the definition of a piece of shit. When all is said and done, I blame Iraq on George W. Bush, but I also blame Tom Daschle. It was never Colin Powell who could have stopped the march to war. Tom Daschle, Senate Majority Leader, he had all the power and he refused. Yes, I obviously blame George W. Bush, but he was doing his job as a dumb Republican. He was a dumb Republican who had been humiliated after 9-11 and wanted vengeance. And he needed to appear tough and deflect attention away from how he completely ignored intelligence briefings 
and allowed the World Trade Center and our very own Pentagon to be attacked. It was Tom Daschle's responsibility to realize how weak a man George W. Bush was, how humiliated he was on 9-11 and rein him in. Because how is it remotely possible that after the trillions Americans spend on defense, the Pentagon, the Pentagon, which is supposed to protect all of us, how is it possible that our Pentagon was that vulnerable? This was the ultimate humiliation for a weak cowboy like George W. Bush and for a Bush administration populated by crypto libertarians who believe the only role government really should play is keep us safe. Well, for people who think that the only role of government is a strong military that keeps Americans safe, 9-11 was an abject humiliation for them. And Daschle should have known that. He should have known that a dumb Republican was going to do the wrong thing because they always do. Bush did, after 9-11, what any ill-tempered, white-knuckled drunk with little to no intellectual curiosity would do. Right? He would find someone else to blame other than himself. So Tom Daschle, Democratic Senate Majority Leader in 2002, didn't do his job. Instead, he gave a blank check to a newly elected, ill-equipped president with major league daddy issues. To her credit, Nancy Pelosi, who was then the Democratic whip in the House, Nancy Pelosi voted against the authorization. She said Bush, this is 2002, before the midterm, she had a safe seat in San Francisco. She said Bush had not used diplomacy to get other countries on board. Pelosi said invading Iraq would only exacerbate terrorism. She said, quote, now we're very critical on this show of Nancy Pelosi, but she voted against the war authorization. This is what she said. As the ranking Democrat on the House Select Committee on Intelligence, I have seen no evidence or intelligence that suggests that Iraq indeed poses an imminent threat to our nation. If the Bush administration has that information, they have not shared it with the Congress. Nancy Pelosi, who concludes, quote, if we invade Iraq, we will show our military power. If we can eliminate the threat posed by weapons of mass destruction without invading, we will show our strength. She got that right. And by 2006, Iraq was considered the single worst foreign policy blunder in American history. And Democrats in 2006 regained the House and Bush fired Rumsfeld. Nancy Pelosi became Speaker 
and immediately turned lukewarm. She turned lukewarm by failing to defund the war. Right? She wouldn't stop saying what a mistake it was and how right she was for not voting for the war authorization. But she was the speaker, and she could have ended the war, this mistake. Her first year, 2007, she could have refused to back a $130 billion Iraq war supplemental spending bill. Every year, there was a supplemental to fund the war. She could have voted no. No money, no war. No money, the troops come home, the United Nations goes in. It's really that simple. See, Democrats control the House, and you can't pass a spending bill without the House. Instead, Pelosi hid behind our troops. She would not bring them home because she wanted to protect the troops. Instead of a $130 billion war supplemental, which she supported as speaker, she needed to do the right thing and pass, I don't know, a $50 billion peace supplemental that covered all the costs of shipping our soldiers home from Iraq. But instead, right after winning the gavel and becoming speaker, Pelosi mischaracterized the role she could play in ending the conflict. She acted as though her hands were somehow tied. She said, quote, this is right after she became speaker, quote, let me remove all doubt in anyone's mind. As long as our troops are in harm's way, Democrats will be there to support. God, this makes me so angry. Let me remove, this is what she said. This is the definition of lukewarm that Jack Kennedy was talking about, right? She has the power to make sure the supplemental doesn't get passed. And she says, let me remove all doubt in anyone's mind. As long as our troops are in harm's way, Democrats will be there to support them. But we will have oversight over that funding. Lukewarm Bullshit. It's, oh yeah, the troops are in harm's way, so we have to support the troops by passing the supplemental instead of saying, we'll pass a supplemental that brings the troops home. See, they hide behind the troops. Our troops were in harm's way. The war was a disaster. The speaker's oversight of the, the funding of the war should have explicitly stated in 2007 we will not authorize any more funding that goes towards keeping troops in Iraq. We will only authorize funding to bring them home. That's how you protect troops who are in harm's way, Nancy Pelosi. The troops are in harm's way. You pass a supplemental to bring them home from this criminal war. She, Nancy Pelosi, could have ended the war. She knew, she knew it was wrong. She voted against the war authorization. But when she had the power to stop it, to defund it, 
she stood silent. Lukewarm cowardice. And Nancy, your lukewarm cowardice is the kind that gets thousands and thousands more killed and maimed. This week, President Biden, who as senator also voted for the war authorization in 2002, is expected to sign a bill that cancels the war authorization after more than 20 years. More than 20 years. Do I need to review? Do I need to go over the lives lost, ruined, our soldiers maimed, suicidal? Nothing good came from the invasion of Iraq. Only death and suffering and suicides. Nothing good. And yet, Donald Trump is the ex-president who's going to get perp-walked tomorrow. There's a guy in Texas, former president in Texas, painted wounded, painting wounded soldiers tonight, who should be handcuffed and taken to The Hague. But, of course, America is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court. How could we? Our presidents would all be at The Hague. No accountability in this country. None whatsoever. Two weeks after the invasion of Iraq, when it looked like it was going to be a cakewalk, I think uh, nuclear arms, I think it was Edelman who said it's going to be a cakewalk. Uh, And it looked like it was going to be a cakewalk two weeks in. And so MSNBC's Joe Scarborough, Morning Joe, you know, if you're in politics, you got to go on Morning Joe. He is, for some reason, people love him. Uh, It's been around forever. MSNBC's Joe Scarborough, Scarborough wanted an apology after we invaded Iraq and it seemed to be going so well. He was incensed. You know, he had that blood lust. He, you know, he saw shock and awe. And we were going to win this thing. Former Congressman Joe Scarborough said on his show, quote, this is 20 years ago. This is what he said. I'm waiting to hear the words, quote, I was wrong. Scarborough says, I want to hear people say I was wrong from some of the world's most elite journalists, politicians and Hollywood types. I just wonder who's going to be the first elitist to show the character to say, hey, America, guess what? I was wrong. Mm. Who was wrong, Joe? And then he said, and remember, this is just two weeks after the invasion of Iraq when it was supposedly going swimmingly. Joe Scarborough said, You all remember Scott Ritter, you know, the former chief U.N. weapons inspector who played chief stooge for Saddam Hussein? Well, Mr. Ritter actually told a French radio network that, quote, the United States is going to leave Baghdad with its tail between its legs defeated. Sorry, Scott. 
I think you've been chasing the wrong tail again. Scott Ritter said the United States, Scott Ritter said there's no weapons, no WMDs. They never found them. He said the United States is going to leave Baghdad with its tail between its legs. Well, he got that wrong because by the time we left Iraq, our tail was shot off. Ritter and the UN was right. And the MSNBC pundits like Joe Scarborough and the neocons like Bill Kristol live happily ever after on MSNBC and CNN. The UN was absolutely right on Iraq. And it is right on Ukraine. You don't invade. War is a crime against humanity. All war, especially Iraq. But this week, we arrest Trump over hiding hush money paid to a porn star and pat ourselves on the back, calling America a nation of laws. <laughs> Well, that's so funny. We're a nation of laws. So we're going to lock up the ex-president. By the way, if you're watching this, uh, that's a picture of Stormy Daniels and her lawyer, Michael Avenetti. Uh, that's Michael Avenetti. Uh, he's been sentenced to 14 years in federal prison for hiding $11 million from his clients in the IRS. Uh, it's 14 years in prison. And you know why he got such a harsh sentence? He didn't steal enough. If only Avenetti stole $2 billion from Medicare, like Republican Rick Scott, he could have been elected senator from Florida. You got to steal more money, Michael. Otherwise, you go to prison. Thank you for listening. For a free transcript of today's show with citations, hyperlinks, sources, uh, please subscribe to my newsletter. This will be sent out. Uh, I know a lot of things I said people don't believe, like the Taliban <laughs> weren't behind 9-11. I know that's a hard sell. Subscribe to my newsletter and uh, you can uh, go to the hyperlinks. Also, this Friday night at 8 p.m., Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny and I are hosting a fundraiser for maybe a girl who is running for Adam Schiff's congressional seat in Los Angeles. Uh, if you're listening to this as a podcast or on any other platform, check the description of this episode. Uh, you'll find the Zoom link and uh, it's free. Come come join our Friday night meetup. We've been having these for three years and uh, meet the great Howie Klein, my moral compass, and meet maybe a girl who we want to send to Congress, Blue America endorses maybe a girl. She's running for California's 30th congressional district. And uh, she is the first transgender politician ever elected to office 
in America. Uh, she holds uh, a seat on the Silver Lake Community Council. And she's run for Congress before. She's thoroughly vetted by Blue America and Howie Klein. So uh, come out and meet her. We have some new listeners. And uh, I make myself available every Friday night at 8 p.m. at office hours. The link is in the description of this episode. Go to my website and hit the office hours link there. It'll, it'll be, Dan will update it uh, in about 12 hours. So it may not be there right now. And uh, I'm available. I, I'll talk to all the audience members uh, who want to talk to me about anything you want. But this Friday, it's Howie Klein and maybe a girl. And I look forward to uh, meeting you. Please uh, like this episode. And as I've said before, I uh, read all your comments. So please, uh, really does make for good reading. Uh, and I hit the heart next to the comments to, to prove that I've read it. But sometimes I don't always hit the heart if I'm, you know, on a subway. So, but I read all your comments and some of you might be able to tell that I get ideas for topics from, from your comments. The only reason you're listening to this show is because a friend of yours shared it with you through email or via social media. Because of the content and the subject matter, nobody's helping me. Sam Cedar helps me, but nobody's going to promote this show. So the only way uh, we get the word out is by you copying and pasting the link to this episode, sharing it on social media, please, and uh, or in an email to your friends. I also should mention that I end every episode by saying, stay strong and protect the weak. And we printed up some bumper stickers, but I'm not going to sell them and I'm not going to mail them to you. I don't have time. However, anyone who comes Friday night to the fundraiser for maybe a girl, if you show up and you donate a dollar, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, you will have mailed to you a stay strong and protect the weak bumper sticker. So it's a reason to show up. You don't have to donate, uh, but meet Howie Klein and maybe a girl. I think that covers everything. I think it covers everything. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Thank you very much.